this golden rule that I came up with, and I live my life to the, to, by these words to this day, just do what you want when you want. It doesn't have to manifest itself as just pure, unabated self-centeredness. No one will fix your problems for you. You have to take responsibility for your own happiness. You have to give yourself permission to be happy. And part of that is sometimes making very tough decisions. That, that's actually selling it way too short. There is an exact point that I can talk to you about that changed not only my magic career, but my life forever. Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. Huge props to Kupla for supplying the music that you hear on this podcast. Definitely check out his music on SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the other places you find music. And please show him your support. Give Kupla a follow on Twitter at Kupla Sound. That's K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. Humans and Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic needs, with a huge selection of seal product, singles, and accessories. Are you trying to keep up with the standard and modern metagame after the release of Throne of Eldraine? Then you definitely need to visit ChannelFireball.com. Get all the strategy content you need to take your game to the next level. Humans and Magic is sponsored by Cardboard Live. If you're streaming Magic Arena, then you have got to try the latest CBL Twitch extension. To get access to the beta program, reach out to James at Cardboard.Live. We'll hook you up. I have a special announcement to make. The Humans of Magic book is here. 12 interviews with 12 of the greatest minds in the game today. We get philosophical, personal, and deep. Pick up your copy on Amazon.com. It is available in both paperback and Kindle editions. After working on the book for more than a year, I'm truly excited to get this thing out to you. It is absolutely jam-packed with content. It is 500 pages with exclusive illustrations created just for the book and an amazing foreword by Autumn Burchette. This was a true passion project. I've always felt strongly about the power of conversation. Conversation unlocks new perspectives and ways to look at the greatest game ever made. It's why I started Humans of Magic, and I couldn't be more excited to release it in written form. It would mean the world to me if you could pick up a copy. I'm sure that you will enjoy it. All right, let's get to the main event. Today we are here with Riley Knight, well-traveled renaissance man and national treasure from the land down under. You may know Riley from his prolific commentary work, insightful strategy content, and role as the co-host of Arena Boys. Magic or not, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. He's also a big fan of history. Riley runs a podcast called Half Hours History that is brilliant and well worth checking out. This was a really fun conversation. To put it simply, Riley opens up about his life in a big way. We end up talking about the meaning of life, the possibility of living in a simulation, and Riley's big picture goals. He was an absolute riot, and I had a ton of fun conducting the interview. Could not stop laughing. I hope you enjoy it. 
Today on Humans of Magic, I am here with Riley Knight. Riley, how are you doing today? Hello, it's great to be here. Because we're recording this online, whereabouts in the world are you at this time of day? So I'm I'm in Glasgow, which is in Scotland, which is part of the United Kingdom, which which I mean, I don't obviously shout it from the rooftops, but a lot of people still think that I live in Australia. So I'll rock up at an, a European GP like when I was doing coverage there or whatever else. And they'll be like, oh, oh you know, hey, oh, I just flew in. Oh, geez, you must be tired. It's like, no, it was like a couple of hours. On the, it was fine. You know, they, they sort of assume that I'm flying 22 hours to, to cover a GP from Australia, which wasn't, yeah, it was never the case. Given your Australian roots, you definitely are one of the shining stars of Australia. You represent Australia from a magic perspective, right? Um, I mean, there you know, there, there there are a couple of pretty pretty big names that have come out of Australia over the years. Obviously, you know, Jeremy Neiman. There was uh, Dan Unwin as well, and now more recently Jessica Estefan as well in the MPL. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, the, I, I'm not sort of deeply entrenched in the Australian magic community anymore. I haven't lived there for five years, but I'm um, still got a lot of mates back uh, back at home. So you've been in Glasgow for the past five years. It sounds like. No, no, no. I moved to Glasgow about two years ago, and before that, I lived in Berlin. So I've I've I haven't lived in Australia for yeah five and a half years and uh three three and a half of them were in berlin and now two in glasgow right on so you're very well traveled what we'll probably get into that a little bit is you know your globe setting ways being mm. riley knight the international man of mystery and all that <laughs> i like that i like that a lot that's that you were asking me when we say oh, you know how, how do you want to be introduced i quite like that one you know forget broadcaster commentator just international man of mystery that's very good there you go i've been really excited to do this interview i've been thinking about doing this for quite some time. And this week, I was honestly a little bit nervous because I, I've i interviewed a bunch of people, but you just strike me as someone who is very talented in so many different aspects. It's not just magic commentary. It's not just, there's not just one thing. And I want to go into all of that. But I think the first thing I would really like to ask you, okay, I got to set this up because every time I hear you on on the air or you're doing something as part of your podcast or doing Arena Boys, you always strike me as being extremely, extremely funny. But what's really cool about you, at least to me, is that you don't take yourself too seriously. Right off the bat, Riley, I wanted to ask you, how do you think you develop this self-deprecating style of humor? Well, first of all, thank you for saying all those very nice things. I didn't realize. I mean, I would have, I would have been much keener to do this interview if I realized I was going to sit here and just have nice things said to me. That's very good. I love, I love <laughs> that stuff. That's, we can have more of that. Um, I guess the voice that I had as a, as a, as a, as a broadcast, an entertainer. I guess I don't know. I don't really like calling myself that, but I mean, there are some people who seem to enjoy listening to the nonsense that I talk about. Um, it kind of, it kind of happened by accident. I guess I've always enjoyed being in front of a crowd, even even when I was a kid. Like I joined the school orchestra when I was about eight years old, and I remember uh, before a performance one time, I was there with my little cello, and the rest of the, the rest of the kids in the orchestra, they're oh geez, you know, they're 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 crapping their decks, they're so nervous, they're so worried, and I'm like, why are you guys nervous? We get to sit in front of all these people, and they have to watch, they can't leave, they have to watch us play. It's fantastic. We have to like we're the center of attention. Um, so for, as long as I can remember, I always always just wanted an audience. Um, when it comes to, you know, getting up and talking and, and trying to entertain people or, you know, the humor as you talk about that sort of stuff, stuff, I can definitely identify a couple of different things that sort of got me to where I am today. Um, part of it, so I, I guess from a, from a, an actual like mechanical standpoint, from a practical perspective, um, the, the job that really allowed me to express this the, the most to begin with was when I started working as a pub trivia host in, um, in, in Melbourne, this is years and years ago, this is back in what, 2010, 2011, um, 
I picked up work as a, as a you know, you know, everyone knows like, like what a pub quiz is, right? Like you go yeah. to the pub and there's a bloke up the front, he asks you a question, you try to get him right, that sort of stuff. So I just, I, do, I did that and I was, you know, talking a lot of nonsense, whatever else there. Um, and then that led into uh, magic commentary, as, as we'll talk about, I suppose, and how, you know, able, just able to adapt just talking nonsense uh, while also trying to make a game of magic interesting, which is actually quite a challenge at some, sometimes. Magic isn't the most exciting game to watch all the time. So that was definitely something I had to work on. But um, I guess the, you talk about the voice that I have or the, or the, the, the sort of persona or whatever you, you want to call it. And uh, there's been some very, very big influences on me when it's come to developing that. Um, the first and probably biggest is me, my brother. Um, my brother Oliver is uh, – he's just – he's the funniest person I know. I, I really – like he's, he's so, so effortlessly entertaining to be around all the time. But he's not a huge fan of speaking in front of crowds. So it's the sort of, it's, you know, he's, he's influenced me with all, you know, with his incredible sense of humor, but I'm the one who can actually pull it off in front of a, a big group of people. So that's, I, I get the best of both worlds there. Um, secondly, it's just a lot of the media I, I consume. Uh, when I was young, I used to listen to The 12th Man, which is a, a comedy sports uh, series, or there was, he released a bunch of CDs uh, about basically doing sort of satirical cricket commentary. Um, anyone who doesn't understand cricket probably isn't going to have the best time listening to it, but it's very, very, very funny. And he used to make fun of, you know, the the players and the commentators and all that sort of stuff back then. But you'll notice that if you listen to him, you'll immediately recognize that I've just basically wholesale ripped off his entire shtick. And and the final people I want to talk about, uh, again, more recently, huge, huge influence on me when it comes to entertaining people is Hamish and Andy. And I've spoken I've spoken about these guys a lot. They were a... Um, they're a radio duo. They used to be. Uh, they used to have a, a daily radio program on the on the afternoons on Australian radio. Um, they also have a podcast, and they're just two of the funniest people you ever going to hear. They don't. They don't take anything too seriously. They. They are just. They. They. They celebrate the the silly minutiae of life all the all the you know ridiculous little things that we all come across every day and and so you know they're doing at the moment they're doing a a, a big competition to find the best. Um, one-off chi- roast chicken shop in Australia. Like th- those are the sorts of battles <laughs> that they fight, you know. Um, and they're just—they're really funny. They don't take themselves too seriously. They've got all—I I cannot recommend their podcasts enough. It's free to listen to. You can g- get the app and do that sort of stuff. But on YouTube, they put up um, episodes of their old TV show where they travel around the world and have all adventures. So, yeah, I'd say between my brother, Twelfth Man, Hamish and Andy, uh, they, this is where the sort of the the comedy side of things come comes from, I guess. Yeah. So. You mentioned that your brother is very is a very funny person, but he was not able to maybe do that in front of a big audience or even in front of an audience period. Was there something about you that allowed you to overcome that stage fright? Because I would imagine it's not natural to a lot of people to be able to do something like that without freezing up, whether it's doing a musical performance or at a pub. Like, do you, Can you trace back to where you think you were able to overcome it and just say, you know, F it, I'm going to be able to do this. Nope, never. I've never, I've just never had, you know, have you met, ever met someone who can just draw and they think it's like nothing and they'll, they'll show you this incredible drawing they've done. You'd be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You're like, nah, it's not that good. My sister's a little bit like that. She can, she's been drawing forever and she can draw something and you look, you go, wow, that's, how did you do it? And she's like, oh, it's easy, whatever. It's not even that good. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's really infuriating because like, this is incredible that you've got this gift and you don't think it's, it's that amazing. Right. But for them, it's just effortless. And it's the same with me with performing. I've never found it hard to get in, up in, in front of a group of people and talk. I've never found it difficult to entertain people or – I mean, not even entertain. I don't even care if they're entertained. As long as, you know, as long as they're paying attention to me, that's it, right? 
Um, so if I'm, if I've, I've never had any stage fright, nervousness, nothing like that really ever. It's just, it's always come very naturally to me, which I recognize I'm very, very lucky. I'm like, very lucky that that's the case. I mean, I'm lucky that I've been able to make a living off it, but, uh, no, I don't know. I mean, me and my brother, very different people. Me and my sister, very different people as well. And um, he definitely shies away from the limelight. Mills more into music and, and and politics and all that sort of stuff as well. My sister, um, but uh, yeah, no, I've always I've always found it very easy to just get up in front of a group of people and, and just talk nonsense. Was there something about you being, you know, maybe part of the sibling dynamic or something at home that made you want to maybe stand out and and say these kind of things and be funny? Was there something along those lines, or was it just like? You just enjoy saying these things because you were very influenced by some of the comedy or humor around you. Oh, I don't know about the 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 dynamic between me and my brother and my sister is usually me and my brother picking on my sister. So <laughs> I guess you know, I get. I mean, it wasn't so much performance or anything else. They were me, me needing to sort of stand out from uh, from those two because I always had an effortless partner in crime with my brother, and we'd always pick on my sister. Yeah. Um, no, look, I don't know. It's just it's just one of those things that, again, has come very easily, very naturally, even from a very young age, you know, pl- playing music or, uh, you know, I don't know, doing debating or giving speeches or being part, you know, school functions, whatever else. I just, it's not, it, it's not something, I, you're actually making me think about it now more than I really ever have, like where it's come from. I don't, I, it's just something that I think has always been just it's very innate, naturally yeah. appealing. Yeah, it's innate. I just, I just like having an audience and... You know that, that you you could definitely call that shallow. You could call that pretty pretty narrow minded. But I mean, I just it's just something that I've always always enjoyed, always always striven for. So, what was the worst thing that you and your brother did to your sister as a prank or as a oh as wow. a way to bully um, her? <laughs> all right, <laughs> that so, you're allowed to say on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. All right. Um. So my favorite, my favorite, my sister was absolute, absolute wild thing as a kid. She was an absolute wild thing. She was, she was, she couldn't be contained. There were no breaks on the Amelia train when she was a kid. She just, she'd go anywhere, do anything. She was an absolute wild child. And one time we're out in the backyard and Oliver and I, right, we'd found a little slug that was sort of crawling across the, uh, crawling across the backyard. And I'd heard from a kid at school that if you put, if you put salt like on the ground, a slug wouldn't go over it, right? And or if you put if you put salt on it, it would like bubble up and fizz. So obviously, being you know whatever, like a ten year old boy without much of a a conscience at this point, I'm not not particularly proud of this. But yeah, went and got the salt, did a little circle around it, and sure enough, it was stuck. And then we, when Oliver and I, we, you know, we're putting. The, I say Oliver and I, it was just me. He kind of just went <laughs> along with whatever I would, you know. He's just a, again a willing partner in crime. Anyway, so I get the salt and I put it on top of the on top of the slug, and the slug's bubbling away, whatever else like that poor thing. Anyway. We get bored, leave it alone, and then Amelia comes out in the backyard and she sees this this thing, this like little little you know goopy thing on the ground covered in this white powder, and she goes, "Oh, that's a lot. That's a sweetie. That's a bit of candy, right?" And Oliver and I watch it. We don't say anything. We just let it happen because it was so funny. We we watch her go up there, pick up the slug, and put it in her gob, <laughs> right? Mum sees it, comes out yelling, get that out of your mouth. And, of course, the first thing that you do when you're, like, three or four years old and, and you know, you've got something you shouldn't have, immediately, you know, you put, put it in your mouth. Immediately, she just chomped it in half and swallowed it, right? Yeah. Trying to look let's, in Let's get it down before, before, I, before someone stops me. Exactly. Before mum can come and pry it out of my jaws. And so we watched <laughs> – we sort of didn't quite force her to or anything, but we definitely enabled our sister – eating a slug at the tender age. I think she was three or four years old. And I tell you what, she's never forgotten it since. We are. We, 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 I mean, I'll send this podcast to Mill after we finish recording to make sure she can hear me telling the story one more time about the time she ate half a slug. There you go. And 
now you're making me really curious. What does a slug actually taste like? Did you guys ask her? I'll have to ask her, man. I can, I can, I'll follow it up. I'll follow this up. I'll, I'll, I'll email her. I'll message her and yeah. ask her exactly that's, what that's the burning question remembers. I have now. Yeah. She may have repressed <laughs> it. You know, what a terrible thing for your brothers to do to you. She Great. may have repressed it. Now you're going to bring it back. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, you grew up in Australia with your, your, your siblings. And can you tell me a bit about your family background, maybe your, your parents and what they mm. did? Sure. So mum's a nurse. Uh, she works at the moment now. At, at, uh, so my parents moved out to the country after I left home. Immediately, but like the week after I met, left home, they got a dog and moved to the country. So, oh, so it's and related they, or, or what? And they moved into a house that didn't have a spare bedroom as well. So the message was very, very clear. Thanks, mum and dad. Um, <laughs> and mum works out in the hosp- local hospital, regional hospital out there in Castle, Maine. Uh, dad's an architect. He works in the city. They're, they're, they're separated and they're divorced now. But um, uh, he, he works in this big architectural firm. He's... Um, He's a, he was a building designer for years and he works as an architect. Um, and uh, my brother is an accountant now. He works um, he works in Bendigo, which is a sort of a, a town that was established or, or flourished after the gold rush in Victoria. Um, and my sister, she's, she's at uni. She's uh, in Geelong. So sort of all spread out around the state of Victoria. If you know, if you know Australia, Victoria is the bit down the bottom right. And uh, everyone, they're all sort of spread out throughout, um, throughout regional Victoria there. And then I'm all, all the way on the other side of the world. Were you closer to your mom or your dad growing up? Oh, definitely my mom. Yeah, my dad and I didn't have too much in common. We still don't. Um, mum, mum and I, are very, very good mates. And dad and I, obviously, we get on really well. And you know, he was both of them were over here actually um, in at separate times in um, in the UK this year. And we went hiking and had all sorts of adventures and that sort of stuff. But uh, dad was uh, dad. You know, he liked his sports, liked his motor cars, liked his footy. You know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I was very bookish. It might surprise people to learn that I was a, a just a huge nerd as a kid, and you know, playing Halo and all that sort of stuff. So he was usually outside kicking a footy with Oliver, whereas you know, Mum and I would uh, would would sort of have we'd have more to talk about, I guess. You know, we we Dad and I on on a cultural level kind of ships in the night. You know, we didn't really have too much in in common. But it's interesting. I mean, I mean, every adult who you know grows up eventually with their parents realizes that, you know, you get to a point where you, you become friends with your, with your parents or, you know, not everyone obviously, but some people do. And, it, and that's the sort of stage of the Now it's quite nice, you know, it's quite nice to have adult relationships with your parents, even after things have changed so much. I think so. I think it definitely evolves. I'm thinking about my relationship with my parents because when you're, when you're younger, they're just sort of authority figures, you know, they're responsible for literally taking care of you. And once you venture out into the world, you know, your relation with them changes. So maybe this is saying a little bit too much about me because really it should be about you. But, you know, my parents also separated when I was younger and I definitely had a very different view of them as people versus now where I feel like I'm actually on better terms with them now as an adult than I did as a kid. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. No, the, you, you give a relationship. And it's the same with my sister and my brother as well. My brother and I have always been thick as thieves, but, you know, your relationship with everyone changes and you can't, change that i don't think you can try to influence it but fundamentally you know you're a different person at the age of 30 than the, the person you were at the age of 13 and, and necessarily your relationships change and you know I, again my dad and i still don't have too much in common on a cultural level but it's still just not like when he came over here and we were hiking in uh, in germany like that's just it was just nice to be able to share that with a bloke who you know had, had helped me become the the man that i am today one one i can remember the point at which actually i can remember the point at which I, I very specifically recognized my relationship with my dad changed forever. And it was, I was probably maybe, I, I, I'm just guessing, like early 20s, maybe 20, 22, 23. And I'd gone to visit mum and dad. They were still together at this stage. 
um, I'd gone to visit them for the weekend, I'd gone up there like that, and we're sitting down to have dinner. And uh, and I swore, I think I said the F word or something like that in front of him, and he's gone, uh, Riley, mate, watch your language. And I, was just, I just looked at him and like, mate, I'm 23 years old, I can say whatever <laughs> I want, you can't tell me what to do anymore. Yeah. You know, and I guess it was at that point that I realised like, oh, geez, like, he just doesn't, like, we don't have that kind of relationship anymore. You mentioned playing Halo and being into reading, so video games mm-hmm. and reading, were those oh, yeah. your, your primary hobbies growing up? Yeah, I was... I was very, I was very, um, I was an indoor kid, you know, I wouldn't say I was an introvert because as, as we've talked about, I like sort of getting out and about and chatting with people, whatever else, but, um, no, never, never much interest in, in, in footy and I liked cricket a little bit. I played a little bit of rugby as well when I was a kid. Um, but, um, no, look, I was definitely, de- definitely very bookish. Love my video games, love my books. Um, still like that today, obviously. I mean, you know, I don't mind getting out and about in, I like hiking and that sort of stuff today, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't catch me with a with any kind of sports ball these days. And uh, yeah, that's, that, that's something that's been the same since I was a kid. What were some of your favorite authors growing up? Did you have any? Jeez. Yeah. I mean, my favorite, probably my favorite book of all time is probably the Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. And that was the book that like kicked off my love of fantasy and all the rest of it like that. Um, what else I really like as a kid? I'm trying to think. I uh, obviously Harry Potter grew up with Harry Potter, of course, as, as a lot of people my age would have done. People born, you know, sort of late '80s, early '90s would have grown up with, uh, with at the same age as, as as Harry Potter throughout the you know throughout his stories and that sort of thing. So that was very big. Uh, it was mostly fiction, I would, I'd say. Mostly fiction. I used to read. Oh, I used to read Animorphs. I don't know. I read every single Animorphs book. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's. No, like that's, embarrassing that's uh, or not, those but... are those are literary <laughs> classics. So oh, I'm man, glad absolutely. you mentioned. Call, shout I, out I to learned... Animorphs. Yeah. I learned very recently that a lot of them were ghost-written, which was a bit heartbreaking. But then again, there were like 55 of them that uh, that K.A. Applegate sort of crapped out in like five years or something. So it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting how there's things that you really appreciated when you were younger. And then when you find out the, the deeply about how they're actually made, it's not as pleasant or cool anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. That's, uh, that's, that's something that... Uh, I learnt and have kind of stuck to as well. Um, you know, if you've got something that you hold very dear or something that is going to mean a lot to you uh, in a vacuum, sometimes it's best not to. So I'll give you an example: The Witcher, right? These days, love The Witcher. I love the books, love the franchise, love the. You know, it's just it's some it's one of those things that just got me. Apparently, the the author of the the um, The Witcher book series just a real just a real nasty boy, just a just a very unpleasant person, and you can't help but have that affect the way you view the 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 product the you know the 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 final output when you know that sort of stuff about it so a lot of the time yeah don't meet your heroes unless your hero is me in which case i'll be very, well, very i nice mean to you, yeah i mean I'll now that i've respect, now that i met you this year and uh, i'm talking to you now i mean I, I i don't regret it so it's awesome oh, it's all an act it's all an act james i'm just for deep down for mate i'm a monster anyway okay well we'll, we'll find out <laughs> we'll find out as we go <laughs> yeah tell me a little bit more about your maybe childhood or middle school, high school years? Like, what was it? What school did you go to? And what were your favorite subjects? And what what were you into at that time before you before the age of 18, I guess? So I was I was a huge loser at school. Huge, huge loser. I, I, at primary school, I, I had a good little group of mates. But then obviously, we all we went off to high school. We don't have middle school in Australia. It just goes straight from primary school, elementary school to high school at the age of 12, 13. Um, and so I went to high school and, um, immediately just stuck out like a sore thumb and I kind of lent into that, unfortunately. And for a while I was like just the weird kid, um, up until the age of about 14 and 15 when I realized, oh, actually, you know, having mates is better than being the weird kid that no one really likes or wants to sit next to. So, um, 
I don't know. I had a couple of mates who were kind enough to show a little social pity on me and try to ingratiate me with. Uh, I was I tried to be a jock for a while. Actually, that was when I went through that rugby playing phase, mm. and I, I I tried to fit in with them, which did not work at all. Oh my goodness me! Oh, I feel so so because I used to come and sit with them at the at the benches, and I, I feel so so because I just they all they all couldn't stand me, and I'm oh, I'm so sorry to you know Jimmy Tran and bloody. Who else was there? Uh, Gosho and all the rest of them, Drew, and they all had to put up with me every recess. So I'm sorry about that. Um, but then I kind of found my niche when I was about 17. Um, when I, I I found I found Dungeons and Dragons, and it was it, I found Dungeons and Dragons. I found they might be giants, and I found all this other just nerdy stuff. And I was like, oh, this is what I'm into. This is what I like. These are the this is where I belong. Right. And so that was sort of like a cultural, and also it was a cultural renaissance because, you know, getting involved in like nerd stuff isn't exactly a cultural renaissance. But that was when I sort of realized, oh, this is, this is my niche. This is my place. This is, this is my tribe, if you like. So through a lot of time throughout high school, yeah, I mean, like everyone, you know, I was trying to, you're trying to find your feet, trying to figure out who you are. And I was just lucky enough that I, I discovered um, D&D and, and a bunch of other, you know, really nerdy, nerdy things to go along with my love of video games and whatever else at around the age of 17, which kind of, um, you know, set me on a path that I've never really deviated from since. How did, how exactly did you get introduced to D and D? Like, who who was it, or what club was it that got you into that? And I can tell you exactly what it was. So I used to play a game called Kingdom of Loathing, right? Which is this online uh, memorpiger. It's a stick figure based RPG. It's very very good. I, I I don't have the time to play it anymore, unfortunately. But I used to play it, you know, religiously. And um, there was an IRC channel. Remember IRC? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, man. Oh, I, there was an IRC channel uh, for one of, like, not a clan, but a sort of, you know, a group of, a group of players there like that. And there was this guy called Eldermyth, right? Um, I don't know. His, I mean, I assume that wasn't his real name, you know, if, unless he's had very creative parents. Um, but he, he was chatting about how much fun he'd have playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, oh, I've heard of this. Like, what is it? Isn't it just some, like, weird, like, 1980s, I don't know, even know what it is. And he explained it. I'm like, this sounds incredible. This sounds amazing, and so I went and bought bought like the starter kit from the local uh, from the local uh, game shop, uh, which sold magic cards as well. Actually, I remember walking past all of the magic stuff and being like, "Oh, that looks interesting." But just getting the D and D starter kit and joining a even though I wasn't at the university, I was able to join the university nearby the role playing group there, and yeah, mm-hmm. that it all it all just went from there. So it was a bunch of university students or people that were a little bit older than you were. Yeah, uh, no, there was another. There was another kid from a different high school that also was playing there as well. But yeah, I mean, I was I was probably one of the youngest at seventeen. But you know, everyone was around eighteen, nineteen, twenty, whatever else they're like that. So, but again, as I say, these are my people. I didn't stick out anymore. You know, I was mm-hmm. uh, these were these are the people I belonged to, that belonged with. They're all there playing their, you know, Warhammer and probably some of them playing Magic as well, um, playing D and D and board games that sort of stuff. And uh, as I say, that was just. It it opened my eyes to the to the to the little cultural niche that I that I finally that my home you know and I think for a lot of people to they'll understand people listening will will understand that moment where you realize your your place of belonging and discovering D and D at an early age like that at the age of seventeen I mean you know it's a shame I didn't discover it earlier but even I'm very very grateful that I did discover it at the age that I did because it enabled me to again just find a find a social zone that 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 suited me down to the ground rather than trying to fit in with all the meat-headed jocks, you know, slapping against each other on the on the football field. Yeah. Well, you've opened up Pandora's box with D&D. Now I have to know, Riley, what character did you play? Please describe him or her. Oh, man. All right. So so these days, I, I still play D&D to this very day. I'm running, I'm running um, Storm King's Thunder at the moment for a couple of mates of mine here in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. But um, my first ever character, I'm very sorry to say, because I, I didn't understand the the... the, the 
the depth of, of possibility with playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so I just ripped off a character from a video game I was playing. I don't know if you ever played the the very bad um, Pirates of the Caribbean. It was supposed to be Sea Dogs 2, and then it got changed to tie in with the film that had been released. And it was so close to being a good game, but they obviously rushed it out and weren't able to put like there was a bunch of unfinished stuff in it basically but the main character of that was a guy called nathaniel hawk who was this swashbuckling pirate and so when i joined up with this group i just basically wholesale ripped him off out of the thing because i, I couldn't think of anything off the top i didn't realize you know again how how infinite the possibilities were so i'm like well I'll just play this character from the video game that i'm playing at the moment so yeah it's sure. pretty no, embarrassing I mean, that's, that's actually pretty legitimate i mean you're just doing D for the first time so how could you figure out all the possibilities right what do you play now? I mean, has I, I guess it's evolved from that, right, over the years. I don't play as a as a character very much. I, I much prefer to DM. Um, I've played as a couple of characters. I had Apex Orion, who was this ridiculously power gamed third edition cleric, because you know there was the, like the Book of Exalted Deeds and the um, what was it as well? The, not the Rules Compendium. There was some other like supplement, and you could just combine these feats. And he was doing like ninety damage per hit at like level three or something ridiculous. So that was just an exercise in like trying to break the game um and then there was prendergast fact who was a drow rogue i think but he died he got poisoned and died <laughs> and then this is one of the reasons i don't like being a player i prefer being a dm because like oh right. you get you're, you're actually whatever. a god as a dm right? yeah yeah exactly it says a lot about me wanting an audience as well being the dm but um yeah no i don't i don't play as a player too often actually i much prefer much prefer dming mm-hmm Okay, so you find D&D, you find these things. How did you go from finding D&D to eventually finding Magic the Gathering? So finding Magic was... so I, I knew what was going to happen. As soon as I was introduced to Magic, I knew what was going to happen. So I finished, my, I finished my first degree, and I signed up. I was in a band at this point, and I signed up for a, a degree in music production. This was like a TAFE course, kind of like a community college course almost. Like a, I don't know what you call it in the States or anything else, but it's called TAFE in Australia, or Further Learning, Further Education. Um, and I signed up there to do a bunch of, to, to learn how to record music and, and mix it and, and produce it, all that sort of stuff, sound production. And um, some, of the, some of the people who were in this course, there are a group of uh, four boys from, jeez, uh, where were they from? Doesn't matter. Not not an in- integral part of the story. From regional Victoria somewhere, but they played magic, right? And they said, "Oh, right, you know, you should come play with us." So, I watched them play one time. And I'm like, I can't. I actually, I cannot play this. I can't play this game. They're like, well, what, like, what do you mean by that? Well, that's the thing. I watched I watched them play this game. I let they gave me one. Like they they borrowed me one of the deck, lent me one of the decks, so I could have a game as well. And as soon as I did, I'm like, I cannot do this. I cannot, cannot, cannot start playing this game because once I do, that'll be it. Like I know what I'm like. I know what happens when I come across a game that's this good. I know, like, I could, I could feel the, 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 the oh, the addiction the, coming on, or something. The, exactly the fact that it was just going to completely take me over. So I was like, no, I'm not going to play. Sorry, I'm not going to buy into a deck. I'm not going to get into this. Like, I'm happy to come and muck around with your cards, whatever else, but I'm not getting into this. Anyway, they kind of forced my hand because for my birthday it was it was 2012, so I just turned 23. And um, my 23rd birthday, they bought me the uh, Scars of Mirrodin Psychosis Crawler intro deck. And uh, that, as they say, was that. Um, yeah, I never I never recovered. <laughs> and I'm still here to this day, still playing Magic every single day of my life because um, it's just that good. It's just the best game that's ever been made. And I knew as soon as I started playing it that, that was, I, I was never going to be able to look past it and it, i knew it'd get it, its claws into me and it absolutely has and uh 
look, at the end of the day, I'm very thankful that it did. I'm thankful that I didn't stick to my guns and, and you know, that I didn't continue to refuse that. But of course, as a result of me getting into magic, the band fell apart. I actually dropped out of that course as well. I didn't com- get it, didn't get it all the way oh, completed. Oh, so you think it's actually directly related to you getting into magic? The course? Uh, I mean, the dropping out of the band and, and all of that. Oh, look, magic did magic completely changed the direction that my life took after this. Like I, I started playing, as I say, in May 2012, and within a year, I was flying to tournaments around the world. And and you know, again, as I say, dropped out of the course that I was in. I, I picked up another course, which I did I did complete later. I ended up getting an education degree, but no, like it, it, I, my life took a sharp left turn once I started playing magic, man. Like that was, that was a, that was one of those moments, you know, one of those moments you can identify in your life as, as when just everything changes. So you started playing competitively or going to tournaments quite quickly then? Uh, yeah. So I tried to anyway. So I started playing, uh, uh I think Avacyn Restored was just finishing up and it was just, just around, uh, the release of M13. Um, and I went along to the local game store, or there were a couple in Melbourne. I went along to one of them and, um, got introduced to, uh, drafting and standard and all that sort of stuff there like that. And, uh, tried it, did very badly, obviously as, as you do. But I, I think one of the things that, you know, magic helps you learn is, is how to lose and how to, how to focus on how to improve yourself. And that sort of, and I, I leapt into those lessons head first. I was very, very ready to become a better player. And I remember when I first um, I first spent more than like a dollar on a card. I bought a play set of Phyrexian Crusaders for my Infect deck. And um, then I ended up spending hundreds on uh, uh, the Delver deck. I don't know if you remember from back then. There's a blue-white Delver deck that was obviously just the best deck in standard. Geist of St. Traft and Restoration Angel, all the rest of that. Right. Um, and then I was traveling to PTQs. And um, before long, yeah, I was, I was just trying to, to, to get on the train, I guess, and... I would say probably from from when I first started playing the game to my first PTQ, I would say it was probably three months. So how did you get better or level up as a player in those early days? Did you have specific people that you used as 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 a resource? Did you oh yeah read a lot, absorb a lot of content, like mm-hmm. all of the mm-hmm. above? Briefly describe yeah. that. So uh, definitely probably the mo- well, no definitely the most important thing was were the people that I was playing with. So this is Stephen Campbell, Isaac Egan, Wilfie Horrig, Patrick Robertson. Um, these are the people that I would play. These are the people who, without whom I just wouldn't be here speaking to you today because they were the people, especially especially Patty, because I, 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 we ended up living with each other and we'd sit in the lounge room. He just beat me relentlessly at every format we played, especially Cube. And I learned so much from him as a player. Um, and so having that support and i remember one time when isaac actually you know we were talking and just casually i didn't ask i wasn't asking for you know feedback or a pat in the back or anything but he said you know one day you'll play at the pro tour and i was like you really you think so he's like yeah definitely you've got what it takes that's you know you just have to keep practicing you just have to keep working and just having people believe in me like that i've still never played at the pro tour but that's not the point um the just having that that depth of, of support and belief that was definitely you know a huge huge thing in getting me to level up my game the second thing, of course, which I'm sure I share with, you know, the majority of people who are going to listen to this is limited resources. I listened to limited resources. They taught me that, you know, you should play 17 lands and not just six drops and that Centaur Courser is a very good limited card and little little things like that that helped me go from being, you know, a scrub who didn't know what he was doing to a scrub that at least in theory should have known what he was doing. So that was, uh, that was, that was huge. Um, I'd say that, yeah, between those two things and then, of course, just consuming content, you know, reading everything that was on CFB, reading everything that was on Star City Games and just, uh, you know, watching people uh, stream or 
vods of people streaming or whatever else they're like that just just consuming an enormous amount of content um and at this stage as well as i said gone back to university for a, a, a different degree with this one i did complete the the bachelor the sorry diploma of education um that did afford me a lot of free time luckily it wasn't a particularly intense course so that gave me a lot of time to sort of devote to um yeah getting better at magic mm-hmm. so you became a fixture at the local gaming store or oh yeah to these thursday, night, and thursday night standard that's it thursday night standard man i was the uh, whew, i was the scourge of the x2 bracket don't even worry about it <laughs> riley can you think of a particular turning point where you felt like you had turned the corner as a competitive player maybe there was it was there any event or result or way you even think about magic that you can identify i guess the biggest point at which my career as a magic player and that that's actually selling it way too short there is an exact point that i can talk to you about that changed not only my magic career but my life forever this was probably the single most well maybe it's not the single most but it's definitely in the top uh, top three single most important defining moments of my life and it was all because one opponent in one game said one phrase that changed changed my life forever right so it was a wmcq there'd been a ptq the day before i'd scrubbed out i'd uh, made a few changes i was playing bant wolf run made a few changes to the sideboard um turn up the next day to to battle in the wmcq right ready to go round number one pick up a win round number two i'm playing against patty my housemate right um and he crushes me which puts me at one and one i'm thinking geez this is no good but while he was crushing me i I unfortunately cast a sphinx's revelation with without double blue and once I, it was too late, like it was three or four turns later when I realized, and I was like, oh, geez, so I called a judge and, you know, I got a warning and that sort of stuff. But I was, I was feeling pretty tilted at this stage. Anyway, at X and one, I won out, right? I, I, I just kept on crushing people. It was, I, and again, I'm not a great player. I've never maintained, I've never claimed to be a very good player. So I was very, very lucky that I just won and won and won and won. I got to the quarters and um, my opponent was playing, was playing a, I think it was Bogle's deck or something. It was like guys to saying trap plus spectral flight and um, beat them. But then I get to the semis, and for the first time all day I was playing against Abzan Reanimator. Now, I had a very bad Abzan Reanimator matchup, or at least I thought I did. Um, and I knew it was going to be tough, but at this stage I'm like, you know what? I just made it to the semis. This is fantastic. I've got the playmat. Like, this is the best result I've ever had. And after this, I can say, you know, this is, you know, I don't know if I'll keep going with magic or what I'll do. Like, I'm going to pick up this teaching degree, this teaching job maybe. We'll, we'll see what happens. But this is a, this is a fantastic result. Win, lose, lose, or draw. I'm, I'm very, very happy. Anyway, we're playing game one, get crushed. Okay, game two, losing again. Um, and uh, my opponent plays a uh, an Angel of Serenity and uh, gets rid of... So exiles two cards in their graveyard, like a Thrag Tusk or whatever else, and a Restoration Angel on my side of the battlefield. Now, I'm losing. There's no way that I can win. Like, their graveyard is stocked. They've got an Unburial Rights. I've just, but I'm going through the motions. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'll fight to the bitter end. I'll read Duke for School of Thought. So I cast a Supreme Verdict, blow up the board, and uh, my opponent puts the Angel of Serenity in their bin and uh, picks up the two cards that had been exiled underneath it uh, that went back to his hand. And I, I was rearranging the battlefield, putting my creatures in the bin as well, and then went to pick up my Restoration Angel. And my opponent said, oh, no, no, sorry, dude, you, you definitely missed it. Like, we're back in your main. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're, way, we're way past this trigger having resolved. I'm like, but you, like, you resolved the trigger. You picked up your two cards. Like, I definitely get mine. He's like, no, nah, I'm sorry, man, you missed it. This is in the days of the Pie Heart Wolf trigger where you had to announce every single trigger that went on the stack, otherwise it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um. So I was like, well, I'm pretty sure because you got your creatures, I also get mine back. But, you know, we'll call a judge. So we call a judge. Judge comes over and we explain the situation. And the judge was just looking at us like, 
you obviously get the restoration angel like it's fine just pick it up it's okay and my opponent at this point opened his mouth and said something that would change the course of my life forever and he said yeah i know i was i was just hoping he'd forget so i continued to play the game got crushed decided to stick around to see who was going to win in the finals uh, i was mucking around playing with some mates and the head judge comes over to me while I'm while I'm there and says, what were the exact words that your opponent said to you? And I'm like, oh, no, okay, look, I'm not getting into this. I'm not going to, like, grass him up. I don't want people to think that I've, like, snitched on him because, you know, I was salty about having lost to it. I'm like, oh, look, I, I don't really remember. I don't know what happened. Like, I, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, it, he's like, this is an investigation, and if you don't answer my question, I'll also penalize, I'll, I'll disqualify you as well. Right, if you, don't, you have to be you, truthful, you yeah. You have to be truthful, right? So... I was feeling pretty threatened, I guess, at this point. I didn't really know what to do because I didn't know if I was going to be in trouble, but I didn't want to get this guy in trouble for no reason. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just answer the question. And I said, he said that he'd hoped that I would forget the trigger. Anyway, judges go away for about 20 minutes and they come back and they're like, we've disqualified your opponent retroactively. So that puts you in the final. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. All right. Now, a lot of people there were not very happy with me at this result at all, including my opponent, who happened to be very good mates with the person who had just been disqualified. And he'd been sitting there shuffled up and ready to go for 20 minutes waiting for his opponent, right? Anyway, I sit down across from him. He's playing Naya Blitz. I'm playing, um, I'm playing this band Wolf Run with four Supreme Verdicts and Farseek. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about it, right? Yeah. Game number one, Farseek into Supreme Verdict. They, just, they can never come back from that easy game. He's on the play in game number two. He gets out on board a little bit. Unfortunately, I'm falling a little bit behind, but there's the Supreme Verdict. That's, it'll be fine. Play that. He builds out. He's got a Thalia in play. I need, I need a way to answer this, but I'm, I'm feeling reasonable about the situation because I think, I think I'm in a good spot. I go to cast another um, uh, Sinks Revelation, right? Uh, I've got six lands. I cast it for X equals three, which... You obviously can't do because there was a Thalia there. So mm-hmm. he calls a judge. Judge comes over. He's like, yep, you've illegally cast this spell. That's going to be a warning. Is this the first warning you've got? I'm like, no. This is the second time that I've done. <laughs> I've, I've cast a spell illegally because of the, the Sphinx Revelation from the earlier rounds, right? So he's like, all right, if you do it again, it's a game loss. I was like, okay, fair enough. No worries. I'll, I'll you know, try to pay attention. Put the Sphinx Revelation back on the stack for, um, uh, for two this time, and I draw Sun, Sun Petal Grove and Terminus. So mm-hmm. Terminus, the sweeper, and the seventh land with which to cast it through the Thalia attacks, right? Mm-hmm. There is no way that I can lose this game. Like, they are 100% dead to the second sweeper. They're just, they're, I've got it in the back. I untap, tap six lands, and put Terminus onto the stack. The judge has not left the table from the warning they have just given me about illegally casting a spell through Thalia, and I've just <laughs> done it again. And so the judge is like, I just told you if you do that again, it's a game loss. And I was like, oh, yeah, um, yeah, oops. <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So well, you like, were yeah, probably feeling a lot of pressure at that point, right? I mean, I was I was tilted beyond belief. I mean, the thing is, yeah, there were so many people there. They were all very obviously. But I was the villain. Everyone was going for my opponent. It was terrible. You know, I I looked like I'd, I'd you know sort of scummed my way into this final. Mm-hmm. Anyway, packing it up, go to game number three. I'm sitting there thinking, if I lose this, I've just I've just thrown away a trip to the WMC. Everything that I've been like, I've just chucked it all away. Anyway, opening hand, Supreme Verdict, and Farseek. And he did not win that game. So I was so <laughs> lucky, so lucky to, uh, and to, to be able to get across the line there. But if my opponent in the semifinal hadn't said, I was hoping he'd just forget and he recognized the trigger, if he hadn't said that, 
I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. Mm. I don't know. I'd be, I'd be in Australia as a primary school teacher. I never would have gone anywhere with magic. I was mm. so lucky to have that single instant, that one, that shatter point in my life that, 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 took, that took place that, you know, we talk about magic sending my life hurtling down a certain pathway. This was the one where it all of a sudden took off in a direction that I never anticipated. I never thought I'd be making a living playing magic. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the movie Sliding Doors? Oh, yeah, that was a sliding doors moment for sure. That was a sliding moment, a sliding doors moment for sure. If if my opponent hadn't said that, I'd 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 love to see the universe in which they didn't say that and and and, and see what I'd be doing. Yeah, and just for people who may not understand the reference, Sliding Doors is the movie starring Gwyneth Paltrow where something very minor happens, like she she I think she missed the subway or didn't miss the mm-hmm. subway train, and as a result, the movie shows sort of two parallel lives that happen to her. And I think that was your sliding doors moment because there's, there's some mm-hmm. alternate universe, if you believe in that kind of stuff, where Riley Knight is a, a teacher because his opponent didn't say that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I, I, I don't know if we want to go down this pathway as well, but I definitely do believe in like multiverses and probably an infinite number of them and and also for what it's worth as well if you really if you really want to make me sound crazy here where you said you like getting deep in the nitty-gritty oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah yeah i, I love um, talking about this stuff i firmly believe that the universe that we live in is a simulation i was just going to ask you that yeah i do i do believe I, I do believe that mathematically it is almost impossible for it not to be hmm because it's not inconceivable that that we at one point will be able to generate the technology or the the whatever, right, to simulate our own universes, right, to simulate a, a universe of our own with sophisticated, like sufficiently sophisticated technology. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then the odds of us being in the only universe that wasn't simulated are just so staggeringly small. But that's fine. You know what? It doesn't matter if the universe is a simulation because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, James, the meaning of life is having a nice lunch with your mates. And mm-hmm. in this simulated universe, I'm quite able to do that, and that is more than enough for me. It doesn't matter if it's a simulation or not. Just go and have a good time, and don't worry too much about it, and let the whoever's simulating this universe get on with whatever they're doing as well. It's like that classic scene from The Matrix where I forget the character's name, but you know he he tells Neo that I I know that the steak I'm eating is is not real, but I'm still oh, able yeah. to enjoy it. I mean, I don't you know I don't want to come across like uh, like that. What's his yeah? What is his name? Cyber. Cyber? Cyber, yes, that's it. Cyber, yeah. He was a real nasty boy. I'm definitely not trying to draw parallels between him and me, but the point is, like, you don't need anything other than what you yourself have access to internally to find happiness. I really believe that. Like, mm-hmm. you, the meaningful life for me, as I say, is a nice lunch with my mates. If I get a nice little uh, pulled pork sandwich, a bit of coleslaw, some chips on the side, maybe walk in the park on a sunny day, come back, play some magic, play some jackbox, something like that, that's the meaning of life, as far as I'm concerned. And even if this is a simulated universe, whatever, who cares? So how how did you develop that view where, you know, happiness means being in the moment or having that sandwich with your mates? Like, was there a, a point in time where you started to realize that? Because I'm sure that 15-year-old Riley Knight certainly oh, didn't believe Oh, that. you don't want to meet 15-year-old Riley Knight, dude. Man, I went through a phase of, like, wore flat caps, and I discovered this, like, um, uh, Philosophy 101 book at the local library, and I was going around, you know, spouting Zeno's paradoxes and all the, oh, I was insufferable. I'm so, I listened to jazz at one point. I'm, like, un- <laughs> oh, I was, I'm so sorry to everyone who had to interact with me. As well, I'm sorry to anyone who's a fan of jazz who's listening to this. So hopefully. I mean, well. oh, I'm so sorry to everyone just for everything, really. I'm so, oh, anyway. Um, yeah, no, look, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things that I've, I've gone through some desperately unhappy times in my life. Desperately, desperately, desperately unhappy. 
And building yourself up to a point where you can be satisfied with who you are and where you are is not an easy thing to do. But once once that light bulb goes off in your head, once you figure out what it is, you know, we talked about a sense of belonging. Talk about finding your niche, finding your role, finding your home. And once you once you find something that makes you happy without effort, without having to work for it, someone or something or whatever it is, you shouldn't think too much about it. Many years ago, I, like the, this golden rule that I came up with, and I live my life to the, to, by these words to this day, just do what you want when you want. It's enormously selfish, but it 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 doesn't have to manifest itself as just pure, unabated self-centeredness. Like it makes me happy to make other people happy. It makes me happy to be around people and improve their experience of existence. So it's not just pure. It, it is selfishness on one level, but on another, it's not. But just being, giving yourself permission to be happy and and be content and and be satisfied. I don't know what the word is, but you don't have to adhere to anyone others anyone else's standards for happiness other than your own. I'm sure many people listening to this podcast as kids were told by their parents, stop playing those bloody video games, go outside and get some fresh air. No, you don't have to do that. If it makes you happy to sit inside and play stupid video games all day, do it. Don't do it to the detriment of your health. Like you need to look after yourself physically. You can't get around the biological needs that we have as as as, you know, bags of dirty water. But fundamentally you are allowed to make your own rules for what happiness is for you. And if that is, as I say, a nice lunch with your mates, that's all you need. You don't need anything more. Did you feel like at times in your life that you were living according to someone else's script? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. Of course. I mean, I, I think everyone goes through this, of course. One of the great things about getting a little bit older now, you know, I'm 30 now, and I'm not, I know I've got still got a long way to go, so much still left to learn, but... One thing that I've noticed in the last couple of years, you just stop caring about what other people think. If someone thinks you're an idiot, great. Who cares? I mean, they can find other people to 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 go and make miserable with their nonsense. Who cares that you you live your life according to what is important to you or what makes you happy, not according to, you know, the highlight reel that someone else is posting on Facebook about how marvelous their life is. Not according to the standards that 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 friends you maybe made years ago, but don't really deserve you anymore as a as a best mate you know what they have on you you don't have to be accountable to anyone other than yourself and so for that reason i think like way too many people get hung up on what other people want need or think that they want or think you should live your or think you should have think you should do think whatever just be be accountable to no one but yourself do what you want when you want and your quality of life will improve enormously if you just again give yourself permission to be happy and it's hard, man. It's, I'm not sitting here and saying it's the easiest thing to do in the world. It's not. You've got to fight for your happiness. It's not like I, I know I'm in an enormously privileged position to have this job that I have and, you know, have people listening to the the nonsense that I that I put out, the, the, the rubbish that I talk about, whatever else like that. Like I've, I've, I've ticked a lot of boxes in my life and I recognize that. But I used to live with this guy, right? This guy, he was, he was one of my housemates and he, he moved in. He, he had this job he didn't like. He just worked in a retail job and there's nothing working, not, nothing wrong with working in a retail job. You know, there's, if, if, if some people find it a very enriching and enriching and, and fulfilling experience to, to, you know, work as part of a team that makes them feel happy or work with products that they feel very passionate about. And that, but, but this, this person in particular was very unhappy with his job. And when he moved in, he's like, yeah, you know, I just worked down the road at this shop, but look, I don't like it. And I'm going to move, I'm going to, I'm going to get a new job and, and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm like, that sounds great. Whatever. I don't care. Like as long as you pay your rent and you don't trash the house, I don't really mind too much. 
He lived with me for 18 months, and every day he'd come home from work and complain about how much he hated it, and after he moved out, he was still in the same job because he never allowed himself to take the risk of doing something that was just a little bit outside his comfort zone and quitting. He was always like, I need to find a new job before I quit this old one. No, you don't. Quit your job. Make sure you've got you know, what you need. Put aside the money you need to get yourself through the, through the, the, the job hunt or whatever else they're like that. But don't continue to subject yourself that's making – there's nothing more important than your own happiness. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more important than making sure that you feel good. And so don't sacrifice yourself at the altar of, of, of outdated societal norms about what you should do with your life. Oh, no, go out and cut your hair and get a job. No, do what's going to make you happy if it's possible to do that. And if it's not possible, put every, every iota of effort that you can towards doing something like just – Putting yourself on a on a on a pathway that's going to get you there. I've I've been th- I've been through it, man. I've been through it. I've been through the Nazis. I've been through the misery. I've been through the 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 the, the abject, the horrific, the 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 depths of of, of what you know human e- emotion experience can be. But you just need to see your way clear to getting out on the other side. And if you can do that, and if you can if you can put in place a, a sustainable long-term plan to get yourself on a path towards happiness you just it's then it's just about fighting the fight and you get there eventually come hell or high water and who wants to be miserable no one wants to be miserable i mean if you want to be miserable then that's great do that but don't <laughs> if, you, if you feel like you're trapped if you feel like you're miserable there are always solutions there's always ways out can you share maybe some of the experiences you had where you really felt like you were miserable and how you got out of it not because i really am attracted to that kind of thing, but I, I just want to maybe for you to perhaps give a, you know, maybe some guidance or some perspective on how you, how you're able to do that. I can talk about it in general terms here, because again, it's still very painful and there's some, some very, very, very deep scars there left. I've left from some stuff that happened in my early twenties. I made some very poor social choices when I was between the ages of, I guess when it, I started when I was 14 at high school and, and some of the friends that I tried to make and it ended when I was about 21. So seven years of, it, it wasn't, to begin with, it wasn't too bad because at high school I had other mates, that sort of stuff. But it really got bad once I left school. And I just continued to seek the affection, the approval of people who just absolutely were not worth it. They just did not deserve to have me. Even as the insufferable prick that I was as a 20-year-old, they still didn't deserve even that awful iteration of the person that I was. They were so bad for me, so horrifically toxic for my my, my emotional and, and, and psychological well-being. But I couldn't bring myself to to leave them as a, as a social group, despite the fact that I knew that I didn't, they didn't even really want me as part of their group. Well, I wasn't even part of the group really. I was just this, this, this desperate hanger on. It was, I mean, it was, it was pathetic. It was really, really pathetic the way that I behaved, but I was 20 and I didn't know, I didn't know any better. And I didn't, I thought this is the best I can do. I don't want to abandon this. You know, even if it's, it's bad, it's better than nothing. And eventually, you know, it got to a point where I realized that it wasn't. It wasn't better than nothing, and that I would be better better off friendless than with these so-called friends that were polluting my my any chance that I had at, at, at fulfillment and happiness on a social level. Um, but before I made that realization, there were sleepless nights. There were you know desperate, lonely, horrific moments of of of, of self pity and self loathing and feelings of inadequacy and weakness and overwhelming sense of just complete just there was no way that I could see that I was ever going to get out of this because again, these people were the, the, the only social links that I had. They were the, they were the, my only quote unquote friends and to tear myself away from them. I mean, that's too, that's, that's like my housemate who wouldn't quit his job, mm-hmm. but then eventually making the decision to leave them in the past, 
was probably the best ever decision I ever actively made. You know, I can only chalk up the fact that my opponent got disqualified to dumb luck, but I made the decision to take control, take responsibility for my happiness and leave these people behind. Right. It, w- it was your own agency. Your own, your it's own my own agency. Yeah. And if there are people, if there are things, if there, are, if, there is, if there's anything in your life right now, listener, you, that you right now, I'm talking to you who is listening to this podcast right now, if there is anything that is meaningfully compromising your happiness, that doesn't have a right to be in your life, but still is there because of some sense of inertia or a fear of the unknown or, a, or concerns about what might happen should you... No, cut them out. They don't deserve... Whatever it is doesn't deserve to be part of your life. You are the... No one cares about you as much as you care about yourself. No one will fix your problems for you. You have to take responsibility for your own happiness. You have to give yourself permission to be happy. And part of that is sometimes making very tough decisions in order to step away from inertia-based, ingrained misery. Yeah, I mean, this is this is highly relevant. I can definitely think of times in my life where I was stressing out about things that, in hindsight, really, I shouldn't really give, give a care in the world about. It's just, there's mm. so many things that you look back on in life that are just so funny when you think about it. Like, I was really like you ask yourself. I was really concerned about that. Like that. Yeah. That is yeah. Nothing. That that mattered to me. What? Like what? Yeah. How? Why? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you listen to this and you're you know between the ages of eighteen and twenty two, I bet you're sick of being told, "Oh, you're young. You'll grow up. You'll learn that sort of stuff." But the really really frustrating thing about all the old people who give you advice, and this is you know this is for kids as well as anyone who is young at all. The really annoying thing, the thing that really pisses you off is they're right. It's so frustrating to have to accept that. But everyone who says, you know, it'll this too shall pass, you'll be okay, you'll get through it, they're correct. And you've got to you've got to listen to people who have been there before and they've done you know, they've they've been there and they've done that. And and when someone offers you advice, often well, often the sort of people who offer you advice aren't generally the best people who are, you know, in a best point to give it. But I don't know. I found it very useful as a as a young man, you know, at the age of 22, 23, when I started waking up to a to the broader reality of what happiness could entail. I just enjoyed talking to older, more grown up men who had been through, you know, emotional hardship and how they'd come out on the other side and that sort of stuff. So talking to people at a range of ages, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, whatever else, and just getting their take on it. And I still do that. You know, I've still got a lot of a lot of older people in my life who I'm able to turn to for advice or perspective. I don't take it all on board and immediately just go, oh, what, you know, whatever Roger says, I'm just going to do. But it's really useful having someone like that to to it's like a cheat code, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we've all when you're a kid and you couldn't find HMO six, which was in ice, you know, in ice path in Pokemon Go, why did they put it there? I mean, <laughs> you, you just walk right past it and you can't get to the next uh, the next uh, gym leader, right? Yeah. We all look at the primer, the prima official gu- gu- uh, game guide, don't we? Mm. And this is what older people are. They are the primer official game guides of real life. You can go to them, you can say, hey, I'm having, uh, my heart's been broken, or hey, I'm having this person's doing this to me. And they can say, well, when I was your age, I had this experience, here's what I did, take it or leave it. And you find that HMO6 and all of a sudden you're off to fight the next gym leader, no worries. So, don't be afraid to seek the advice and wisdom of other people. Can you think of somebody during that tough time between 14 and 21 that may have helped you or helped you turn the corner on that? Or was it just kind of waking up one day and just be like, I'm not going to do this, take this anymore? A lot of people helped in, in different ways. Uh, this is, this is going to sound, this is the thing, I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, you mentioned before I don't take myself very seriously and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put myself up on this big pedestal or whatever else like that. And there were people who were there for me. There were people who supported me. There were people who had my back no matter what. But at the end of the day, like, I made the decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and blow my, own, blow my own horn too much, but 
I'm very proud of that 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 poor, broken 21-year-old who finally decided one day enough was enough. And he told him where to stick it. And he walked away and he's never spoken to him since. You know, I'm very proud of the decision that he made. Because, again, while I was supported by people and why there were people who definitely backed me up, whatever else, at the end of the day, as you said before, it was my own agency that got me out of that situation. So more than anything else, you know, backing yourself and, and having the confidence to to follow through on on what you know to be right within within yourself or, or what you believe to, to be the best thing for you is, is, is a difficult thing to do. And, and, you know, if you do it, you should celebrate that. And I don't know, I, I don't, again, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I got my head too far up my own ass here, but I, it was a difficult decision to make. And I, I think I did it by myself, to be honest. Not at all. I think that's a really honest answer. I am a strong pro- proponent of the belief that the only person that can help yourself is yourself. Mm-hmm. Because oh, yeah. um, just think about it. There's so, how many times have I, in, in my unwitting or error prone way try to think about you know a family member or a friend where i'd be like i can oh i can help you if you only did this but the fact mm. is that first initial spark <laughs> to use a magic analogy or something magic reference that spark has to come from yourself like that that can't come from somebody else like you there are a million books resources perspectives roger that you can talk to but if you don't if you're not the first one to think for yourself i need to go in that direction it's never going to get done it's just it's yeah. just human nature. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to move back to the sunny pastures of magic. <laughs> all right. Very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because you are, after all, a magic influencer and uh, international man of mystery. Uh, like that. That's good. So how did you go from magic into content creation? Uh, you know, I, I, am, I am really... Because you seem to have a good fit for that. You have a good talent for that. How did you go from, you know, battling people on the, in, a, in a tournament to actually, you know, maybe doing your first pieces of content for the first time? So, you know, so far I've told the story about how I, I spiked that WMCQ. And, you, and, you know, people sort of look at goes, okay, sure, you won a WMCQ, settle down, mate. I mean, get your hand off it. You, <laughs> you, you, just, you just spiked a random tournament. That's not a life-changing experience. Well, mm-hmm. I'd like to think that I did a little bit more with that WMCQ win than, than you know, potentially other people would have done. Because... What happened was this. I won the WMCQ. I'm halfway through my teaching degree. The WMC happened to be very, very fortuitously happened to be right in the middle of the semester break at, at, at university, right? And um, I was able to extend my flights. Obviously, Wizards was paying for me to fly to Amsterdam, and I was able to extend that to go on a, I think I was away for about a month, maybe in like five weeks, four and a half, five weeks, right? I was able to extend my my, my dates and have this this trip around Europe. And I'd been to Europe before very briefly. I'd been to the United Kingdom and to and to um and to Holland and and a little I spent a little bit of time in France, but I hadn't explored much of uh, much of Europe uh, at this age of what twenty twenty three. And I said, "Bugger it! I'm going to just book a huge big holiday. I'll spend all my savings. I don't care. This is a once in a lifetime thing. I'm never going to get to do this again. You know, it's very expensive, very expensive to travel from Australia to Europe. So I thought I'm going to I'm going to make the most of this. So. I, I planned out this big route around Europe. I went going to Amsterdam, London, Berlin, uh, down into Italy, uh, to Austria, to Vienna, all sorts of places. Big, big thing there like that. I organized to go with one of my best mates, Adrian, organized for Oliver to come over and meet me. Um, uh, my half I don't know really how to call it, half-sister, I guess. It's a very complicated situation. We can talk about it afterwards, but Sarah, another friend of mine, no half-sister of mine, mm-hmm. um, arranged to, to meet all of these people big big huge thing and that was fine again 
doesn't sound that impressive, just a big holiday, we've all had them, fantastic, whatever. But when I was in the United Kingdom, I went to Nottingham to watch uh, the cricket with my brother. And that was when there was a pre-release happening, and I happened to go to Beeston, which was uh, the local store for the area that we were staying in. And I sat down, I was, I was doing a little, you know, I'm a sealed pool, whatever else, and who walks in but Richard Hagen, because it's his LGS, and he was coming to do some spell slinging as part of the, uh, as part of the, the, the pre-release. Wow, the Richard Hagen just happened to be... The Rich Hagen, just casually walking into the shop. So I go up to him, I go, oh, Richard, this sort of stuff, and he says, oh, you're Australian. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm Riley. He goes, oh, on the, on the WMC team. This is how good Rich is. He knew every single player on every single team at that, that was coming up in that event. And he was able to just rattle off all the, you know. So, so I sit down and play against him, and he absolutely crushes me. And he's like, oh, you know, what are your plans? I say, oh, I'm coming to a GP before the WMC, so I'll, hopefully I'll see you there. And he goes, absolutely, come and say hello. I'll be doing coverage. So GP Rimini, I go, this is a couple of weeks later, I go and meet Rich, and I meet Simon, and I meet Matei. And I see their little coverage set up there. And I, I think, geez, this is, this is quite interesting here. Because I had a talk to Rich, and I said, I think I'd love to do coverage back in Australia. Now, I'm sure he got people doing that all the time, and I'm sure he just, you know, gives the same sort of stock answer that he, he gave to me as well. He's like, oh, it sounds good. You know, we can organize something, whatever else, you know, just positive. But I took down notes on all the stuff that they had, all the equipment, the programs, all that sort of stuff they're using that, and went to the WMC. We came like 19th or something. We made day two, a couple of Gs in the back pocket, not a bad innings. But when I went back to Australia, I started to put in motion plans to cover GP Melbourne, which was coming up the next uh, the next year, and I don't I don't know if Rich expected me to or not, but he put me in touch with Greg Collins, who was the uh, who was in charge of coverage at the time, and I started sending uh, plans and schedules and all sorts of stuff there like that. So I took it quite seriously, and I found a group of people. It was uh, Marco and a bunch of other people who uh, were involved in an old team called the Sneak and Show. There was Sneak and Show guys back then, um, and they had a, like basically a streaming setup. And we sent through a little demo reel of what it was like. And this is the first time I'd ever done magic commentary. I just sat there without no warming up, nothing, no practice, just sat there and commentated a match between my friends uh, Luke Mulch and Isaac Egan. And, you know, I'm not going to say it was the best bit of commentary I've ever done. It probably, probably was a long way from it. But it was apparently good enough for Wizards to green light full proper coverage of GP Melbourne in 2014 to the point that they flew out Marshall, Randy and Rashad to come and be part of it, along with me and Ray Walkinshaw, one of the other coverage guys from uh, from the other end of the world. He's a Kiwi, but he lives in Australia now. Wow. So the big guns, like they basically... The big, all, man, they it were... It was just from the audition tape or what whatnot. Kind of. I mean, it, it was incredible. I couldn't really believe that it happened. I just, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, there was all this moment, because I was just going to do it with me mates. Like, we were just going to... And then all of a sudden, the Wizards is just chucking tens of thousands of dollars at it. So I did that. And, um, you know, it, you can go and watch some of the, the coverage. You can go and see, oh, fresh-faced, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 24-year-old Riley Knight with his uh, with, with no facial hair and his hair done just so. I had a lot more of the hair back then. Um, and uh, it was a heartbreaking event, actually, because Paddy Robertson, that housemate, the guy I was talking about before, he came second. Mm. Oh, it was devastating. Um, but, uh, after that, I went and had a chat with Marshall and, and Richard and I said, look, I'm actually moving to Europe. Uh, this is, uh, again, we're sort of dovetailing two stories here and we're missing half of them, but basically the trip to Europe had made me want to travel more again. And so I made plans and I'd actually decided to move over to Europe permanently or not permanently, but at least indefinitely. Um, not even indefinitely. I was only going to go for a year actually. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, I told these guys I was going to do it and, you know, if they wouldn't mind putting in a good word for me, maybe I could pick up some work in, um, in, 
uh, in Europe. I moved to Europe later on that year, email Rich, and I was like, hey, if you've got anything, um, you know, anything going anywhere you need a, an extra commentator, I'm, I'm available. Paddy gave me 5%, a 5% chance of that going anywhere. And I obviously just rolled a natural 20 because from that email, Rich was like, hey, sure, love to have you at Moscow, love to have you at Milan. And from there on, I basically didn't miss a European GP for the next three and a half years or four years. So really, really glad I uh, sent that email off. Really glad that I uh, made those little inquiries. I mean, people, you know, people say, oh, you know, I, I, actually people say a range of different things about this, this story. I don't know if it was luck. I don't know if I made my own luck. I don't know what came together for me to get to the position that I'm in. I guess, you know, you just got to give yourself enough opportunities for things like this to, to happen. And then, Sooner or later, you know, if you throw enough spaghetti at the wall, hopefully some of it's going to stick. And that's not always the best philosophy to have in life because sometimes it leaves you with a very messy wall. But sometimes as well, it just falls into place. And I just happen to be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And from being a GP broadcaster, I was doing that in conjunction with uh, teaching primary school in Berlin. Um, and then I uh, got a leg up onto the Pro Tour team and then Channel Fireball picked me up and it all just sort of snowballed from that, uh, you know, again, from that email that I sent to Rich or from that audition tape I sent to Greg or really all of it came down to my opponent in that semifinal saying that they had deliberately misled their the opponent and demonstrated awareness of a trigger without or, or, or failed to demonstrate awareness of a trigger. Then, you, you know, I don't want to call it cheating, but that's what he was DQ'd for. So, yeah, yeah. It all, it all came down to that. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a chain of events because it's not only your opponent doing that or saying that, but you deciding that you were going to tell that to the judge and then all kinds of things had to yeah. fall in motion in this timeline, right? Yeah. <laughs> in this, in yeah. this version of the timeline. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, my life literally today is built upon the turn of a card, which is quite incredible when you think about it. So it does beg the question, when... You met Rich for the first time. Were you already thinking about doing coverage or was it just sort of something that popped up as you as you met him and you thought, okay, let's put two and two together? No, I was I was just starstruck. I was just amazed to be over there, you know, meeting one of the most iconic figures in, in, in Magic the Gathering. I mean, I obviously watched coverage, the first Pro Tour I watched Pro Tour Avison Restored. I've still like I still get, you know, Bit nervous about around Alexander Hayne because he was the first Pro Tour champion I ever watched. He must be just the best player in the world. Um but uh, it was more when I went to Rimini and saw the setup and I was like, I could do this. I could do this. I could pull this together. This, the, the equipment and the stuff they got, I reckon I could find the people who have it and know how to do it back in Australia. I reckon I could do this. So I think it was more just seeing it in action, seeing it in practice and thinking I could. I reckon I could also pull this off. This might be a little bit of inside baseball to use an American reference, but how do you think you got better as a commentator from that first event to doing something now? No, no idea, dude. No idea, man. I like. I have to tell you, this is like in terms of the, on the art versus science spectrum for me. Commentary is so like I don't think about it. I don't practice. I don't like. I, have to, I learn all the cards and I play a bunch of the formats that I'm going to commentate. But I don't sit down and think, oh, this is a good line. I'll say this, or you know, I'll, I don't. I the rhythm, the 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 cadence, everything that happens when I'm in the booth, it's just, it's all just, it's all au naturel. It's all au naturel, baby. I don't think about it. Even this, I mean, we did a little bit of preparation for this interview. Like you sent me through some of the questions you've, or some of the topics you're thinking we might chat about, whatever else like that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't sit there and construct and form No, you didn't rehearse like, the answers. Like, nah, I'm going to talk nah, about. Off the, off the dome. Off the dome, man. I mean, it's the one thing that I'm good at is talking. And so I've never actually 
I've never sat down and attempted to like studiously improve my craft as a commentator on any kind of scientific level. Although it does sound like, you know, from a little bit of what I've seen in your work and also a little bit of commentary on my own in much smaller events, being able to play off the other people is very important. So oh, yeah. A sense of oh, timing yeah. and also mm-hmm. being able to react to things, quite frankly, because you just never yeah. know what's going to happen in a magic match. So uh, I would imagine those things you, you, you get sharper with as you do more of it, right? A lot of it, I mean, with you know, as Malcolm Gladwell will tell you, mastery is just ten thousand hours away. And and one of the one of the advantages I have is just opportunity. Just I've just done it more than a lot of other people. But you know, the master has failed more times than the apprentice has even attempted it. And a lot of a lot of the success that I've had in in the booth, you know, as entertaining people, whatever else. Yeah, there's an an element of innate whatever that comes to me you know it's not too difficult for me to do but a lot of it is just reps and having someone next to you that you trust someone that you know you're going to work really well with someone who will back you up or get you out of sticky situations if you put your foot in your mouth whatever else they're like that um and you know i'll I'll work with anyone i'm pretty i'm confident that i can sit with more or less anyone who knows their way around a microphone in a booth and, and and put out engaging and compelling magic content but Sitting with someone like Raf Levy, who I've worked with for years, you know, sitting with uh, sitting with someone like PV, who is just a stone cold master of the game and a very very funny dude. Um, this is when you get that next level stuff, and that's not about me so much. That's about the person that I'm sitting with, and and, and the sum is definitely great in the whole. The, the the whole is great in the sum of its parts in that situation. Right on. So, would you say that Raf and PV were maybe some of the favorite? your most favorite people that you've commentated with or I mean is I there always, some is there one person that is like I always you know, get your, asked your this dream question, team man. or always 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 get asked this question I feel so bad because you know I've never had a truly horrific experience working with anyone uh in the booth there's never been anyone just like I'm never working with them again ever but you know there definitely there are people that I've I've had a you know extremely good time with rather than just a very good time and I don't like talking about this very much because it kind of necessarily like starts to make me put people into a hierarchy but working with pv in brazil was an absolute highlight of my career that was fantastic working with paul at the pro tour the mythic championship like there's just there's no on you mean paul cheon there's just no reply his energy the 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 chemistry that he and i have is oh it's just it's off the charts i just love working with paul um raf is someone who i feel very safe and comfortable working with because i feel like we know each other very well we have a, a really good rhythm we're very in tune with each other and um uh, you know, if if the show is going to be challenging, if it's if if the show if there are a lot of maybe technical issues or if it's sort of uh, you know flying by the seat of your pants trying to fill multiple roles at the same time, I would say there's no one I prefer to have on my side than Raf Levy because I know I know that we're going to back each other up and we're going to do the best job that we can to uh, to to produce engaging and compelling and, and entertaining content as Magic broadcasters. So I don't know. I mean, there are people that I really want to work with. Uh, more i mean i've worked a little bit with lsv i did a round with marshall which was amazing fun like you know we both have the same role as play-by-play commentators but he's just he's just very fun to work with her like that i've worked with maria a little bit as well and i really enjoy working with her i really really want to work with paul Reitzel. i've never had the opportunity but as far as i'm concerned he is the best magic commentator on the face of the earth i there is no one that i would prefer to listen to than paul Reitzel commentating a game of magic oh really um how, how yeah, why no, would ab- you say that is because he he blends a masterful understanding of the game. A a one one of the one of the challenges that a lot of high level magic players face is actually extracting 
relevant and worthy information out of them in a way that's understandable and a way that scans for people who aren't on the same level as them. And Paul understands that. The way that Paul Rietzel broadcasts information, high-level information, the way he packages it, is just unlike any other commentator in this game. He's, he's a stone. I don't know if he means to do it, but he helps me. I'm not very good at the game, as I've said, and he helps me understand. He helps me, he helps me have a better understanding of some of the deeper stuff that's going on in any game of magic that he's commentating. And on top of that, he's just really entertaining. He's a really funny dude. And so there's that sort of that three-way marriage of things that, uh, you know, a, a, a technical ability, a very high-level technical, technical ability, a, a, an ability to, to package high-level information in a way that's digestible and also entertainment. Paul, uh, Paul Chion is also very good at this as well, but Paul Reitzel, as far as I'm concerned, is about as good as you can get as far as uh, that's, I mean, that, again, highly subjective opinion, but there's no one I prefer listening to commentating the Paul Ritzel. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen more of him playing magic than commentating. And I mean, I have to say his playing is world-class obviously, but that, that doesn't make me want to check out more of his, his content. Definitely. Mm. Very, very good. Very, very good again. Awesome. So, you know, you bit, you're big on commentary and continue to be so today. But I would love for you to talk also about how you got into some of the other projects you have. You know, one thing that you're known for quite well these days is also Arena Boys. So can you briefly talk about that? You know, how, how you started the project with your your mates. They seem like they're your mates because you guys just oh, yeah. have fun. And, you know, maybe talk yeah, a bit are. about that yeah. if you wouldn't mind. So I, I can, I'll go back a, a fair way to start this story. So sure. when I, uh, I... I talked a little bit about that trip that I took for the WMC, right? Mm -hmm. That trip... It really gave me the bug. It really gave me the travel bug. I'd met people who, who you know, I obviously never would have met had I not traveled. I'd, I'd had experiences that I never would have had had I not traveled. And after coming back to Australia, I just had the itchiest feet imaginable. My plan was to finish my teaching degree, get a job teaching full time, and just live out a relatively normal life. But there was a point at which I realized that I just, I wasn't going to be able to do that. And I was at my cousin's wedding. This is when it happened. I was at my cousin's wedding. Um... I didn't, I didn't know her too well. We'd kind of fallen out of touch there like that, but she was getting married pretty young, I think, from, from my perspective. I think she was only 26. I can't really remember it too well. Again, I don't, I'm really sorry, Laura. I just, we're just not in touch anymore, so I don't know too much about her anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, I was there, and my, my dad, who, he, he doesn't tend to share his advice, his wisdom very much, so when he does, I sit up and listen because he's one of those old men who just has very, very few things to say, but when he does, you, you sit up and you pay attention. And he, we're, sat, we're sat there and people are dancing, having a good time, whatever else. And I'm sat there with him. He got married when he was 23. He married my mum. And, um, and I asked him, like, oh, what do you, I couldn't imagine getting married at 23. I can't imagine getting married at 26. Like, Laura, what, like, what, what is this, you know, what's going on? What's this about? And he's like, yeah, well, you know, look, mate, I, I made the choice I made. And, you know, I've, you know, I've raised you three and, you know, whatever else. And I don't regret any of it. But, you know, I do sometimes think about what would have happened if I'd, uh, you know, if I hadn't got married at such a young age. Like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he, he, you know, again, my dad and I weren't particularly close at this stage, and we didn't really talk about the really, you know, sort of heartfelt, in-depth emotional things all the time. But he could tell that I was going through a very, very meaningful internal conflict about this whole situation with with traveling and whatever else. And he turns and goes, "Mate, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, you're talking about, you know, wanting to go overseas, want to do this, travel on your on your school holiday breaks, or trying to, you know, get away when you can from a life here in Australia. And you know, it's just it's nonsense. What are you doing? You're not going to be able to live this double life halfway across the world and then back here for work. Well, no, just you, you're being silly. And I'm expecting him to then go, you know, cut your hair, get a job, stop putting all this silly nonsense about travel. You know, you don't have the money for it. You, you're not going to be able to do it. Just, but he, he didn't. 
he, he turned to me and he said, if you're that set to go and see the world, you need to do it properly. So you need to put a, you need to make a plan that is going to let you take this opportunity you have to the fullest potential. And that really hit me very hard because this is my straight-laced dad who, you know, uh, at this point hadn't left the Southern Hemisphere. He's talking to me about, like, buying a plane ticket moving to the other side of the world just because I had the itchy feet. And it, it really, it really hit me for six. I had to have a good long think about it. And I decided, yep, yeah, you know what? He's right. I'm going to look into it. I'm going to get a, a long-term, I'll get a, like a year's working holiday visa somewhere and I'm going to move somewhere over the other side of the world to see what happens. So I did a bunch of research and then I just kind of let it fall apart and didn't actually do anything. I was, I was planning to leave in February. I was going to have the Australian summer and then move to um, uh, move to Europe at some point in February. So I would uh, then go and get the European summer as well. Beautiful. But it got to February and uh, – well, sorry. Got, I mean, I, I didn't buy a ticket. I didn't organize anything. And when it got to February, I was just overwhelmed with guilt, just overwhelmed with this sense of, of having let myself down for not following through on what I said I was going to do. And one day, James, I got up. It was a Tuesday in, in, in February 2014. I got up and I said, I'm going to buy a plane ticket to somewhere today and it is going to be a one-way ticket. So I got my bike and I rode down to Smith Street and there were two travel agents next to each other. And I went into one of them and I just said, I would like a one-way ticket to Europe, please. And uh, the guy was like, where do you want to go? And I said, I don't know. I just want to go somewhere, please. Where can I go? <laughs> and so we looked at options. I mean, I had a little bit of an idea. I, yeah. I wanted. I, I was thinking about moving to Germany because I'm a big fan, of, uh, big fan of history, obviously, and that sort of stuff. And I know that like, I was thinking about because Berlin is very much a crossroads of history in the last mm -hmm. hundred, probably the most important city in the last hundred years of history. But I also had a friend in Amsterdam. A very good mate of mine, Michiel, who lives there. And I thought, you know, having a – and also everyone being able to speak English there would be. But I thought, no, you know what? No, hard mode. I'm going to move to a country. I'm going to learn the language and I'm going to find my feet and do and have an adventure. So I bought a one-way ticket to Berlin. And then I went to Sydney and got a, a visa for a year. And uh, in May of 2014, I got in a plane, one-way ticket, packed, packed up my life, left my house, left everything behind and, uh, and moved to Berlin. I was lucky enough to get a job as a primary school teacher there, and um, I was also lucky enough to meet uh, Jamin and Toffel, who are the other two arena boys. So they live in Berlin, and I met them through the LGS uh, there in uh, in Berlin, der andere Spielladen, which um, was, well, I don't know. To be honest, I don't really want to, you know, be too nasty about the place, but I didn't find it a very easy place to play magic. I think part of it was the language barrier, um, but part of it was also the fact that the tables are about as wide as a park bench, so you don't actually face your opponent when you play there. You actually have your your permanents adjacent to each other and sort of play at a diagonal, which I didn't like very much. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, because I didn't like going and playing at Der Andersspielladen, um, I actually had started having Jamin and Toffel over to my place every week and we'd sit there and we'd eat chicken nuggets and drink Pepsi and have a great time playing, you know, magic and Hearthstone and, and whatever else uh, on, on, on the big projector screen that I had. But then when I decided to leave Berlin and move to Scotland, we thought, how are we going to keep it? Cause you know, you don't, you, you say, Oh, we'll keep in touch with it, but you don't, you keep, you know, you send an yeah, email. You need a, a project of, you, or some, you need something. something, right? Yeah. You send messages every couple of months. Otherwise. So we're like, we're going to make something, we're going to make content. We're going to make something. And eventually, you know, after a couple of false starts, we eventually came – after Arena had come out as well, we got, you know what, let's jump on this train and let's start doing uh, – let's just start playing uh, like we would have done at my, at my lounge room in Berlin, except let's record it. And so that's what we do every week. We sit – it is exactly the same as us, just minus the chicken nuggets and the Pepsi. We just sit there and we talk nonsense and we play dumb decks and we have a good time. And this time we just happened to record it and, and, and put it online. And 
yeah, I'm, I'm really like I'm so thrilled that people seem to like it. You know, we you know, it's, it's a relatively small thing in the, in the grand scheme of things. We only get, you know, 10 to 15,000 views every week. But still, that's not nothing. I'm very proud of that. I'm very happy with what we built and the people who watch that, you know, the, the fans that we have of Arena Boys are just fantastic as well. So but more than anything else, and maybe this, you know, is a little bit disrespectful to the craft itself. But the only real reason that we do it at the end of the day, the real reason that behind it is that we, it's just a, a great way for us to stay in touch with each other and, and make sure we, we maintain and, you know, continue to build upon the friendships that we have. Yeah. No, that that actually explains a lot because when I when I listen to it or when I watch it, mm. there is a kind of genuineness to the friendship that mm. is is very authentic you can't fake that it's not like no. you, you three are actors you know and it really comes well, across and that's why I mean, it's very enjoyable if we were to act i think i would be fine but those two are so terrible like they're never <laughs> going to get away with that that's the thing i mean you know i'm sure if if we had scripts and that sort of stuff i'd be i mean i'd i'd be obviously the star character but those two they're really useless how are they yeah. ever going to get through a, an episode of something reading off a script and trying to make, nah, forget it <laughs> no chance so better to just roll with it naturally you know much, much easier way for us to get it done there Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, and, mm. and uh, really loves you know really love the show. And are there things about doing the show that you guys are thinking about changing or improving on, or is it just like you guys feel like you have it pretty locked in right now? Um, no, nah, look, we like it. It suits us all pretty well. The the rhythm and the and the the, the sort of the output that we have at the moment. Um, both those guys are very busy with a lot of other stuff. Scheduling is the biggest the biggest problem we run into a lot of the times because trying to coordinate three people at the same time is quite difficult. But um, no, look, we, we produce content at a very sustainable rate. And, and one really important thing, a lesson that I'm, I'm still struggling to learn today is knowing your limits, knowing when to be able to, to dial back and recognize that you're in a good spot with what you're doing and not overload yourself. So no, I think Arena Boy is in a good spot. I'd love to see those numbers come up a little bit more. But at the end of the day, it's organic. You can't force it. And I don't, you know, I'm not the sort of person who's going to ruthlessly optimize SEO or figure out, I don't know, I don't even know how you do it, like clickbait uh thumbnails or yeah you need like all caps search titles and you know the one thing whatever. you need to learn from magic. Yeah, yeah yeah whatever i'm like i'm not into that i just put it up the people who watch it thank you so much you're all the best and the people who don't watch it go and watch it i mean i don't even, just open it just open it on youtube mute it let it go through like let it run through you don't have to watch it but just have it on it looks good for the numbers please yeah uh, switching gears a little bit I know that you also work with Dennis on the uh, CFB recaps and, and such, and you guys have really good chemistry. I know he's a content creator in his own right. Can you talk a bit about that relationship and, you know, maybe <laughs> but, the, oh, the genesis of that? Yeah, the origin story for me and Dennis is so ridiculous. So, and we've got another kind of slide. Sorry, the, just for here. people who uh, may not get it, like it's Dennis, uh, is it Stranjak? Stran Stranjak, yeah, Stranjak, Stranjak yeah. okay. Um, and he, yeah, he, he's the, he's one of the, uh, marketing guys for CFB events. He's one of the directors there. And uh, yeah, so he, he used to run, he used to have this, um, uh, this YouTube channel called win millionaire, right. And they used to do a thing called the win millionaire game, uh, no windmill slam. Sorry. It was called windmill slam. And he had a thing called the win millionaire game game show. And he messaged me one time. He's like, Hey, Ryo, big fan. Um, I don't know if you said big fan, actually, maybe I'm just putting those words in mouth. whatever. That's what he no, said. We'll that's that. now, we'll that's that, now yeah. canon. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be at GP Birmingham and we're hoping to actually run the William, the, the, the game show as part of like a side event type thing. Would you be interested? I'm like, oh, I'm doing commentary. He's like, that's fine. We can do it after one of the day's commentary. I'm like, that sounds great. No worries. I'd love to. So it's a Saturday, GP Birmingham. I was 
wrecked. It had been such a long day. This was a three-day GP, and I'd been, oh, mate, I was ruined. And when when we we finished about eight p.m., and I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go and do this stupid game show. I'm gonna, oh, I'm just gonna, oh, I don't want to do it. I just want to go back to my hotel and just eat eat food and fall asleep. But I was like, no, I committed to it. I'm gonna follow through on it. I'm gonna do it no matter what. Doesn't matter. So I go along, put on the mask, stand up there, you know go through the whole, the motions, all that sort of stuff and put on a, you know, what I hope was a reasonably good show. Shook hands with Dennis at the end of it. Thanks very much. No worries at all. This ended up being a bit of a sliding doors moment, as I say, because a couple of months later, I get a message from him, except this time it's from Dennis at channelfireball.com asking me if I want to do some voiceover work with him for that recap video, the, the top five that we now we do, you know, even to this day, it's been nearly two years. And I was like, absolutely, sounds great. You know, I'd love to, whatever else they like that. So Dennis and I would very formally, as business associates, email each other with our availability, with our time, with the clips we were going to use, all that sort of stuff. And then we realized, like, it'd probably just be easier if we just message each other on, like, messenger, like Facebook Messenger, whatever else. Like, that'd probably be an easy way to facilitate it. And then we started messaging each other. And then our, you know, calls that would where we'd sit and go over the clips and, you know, figure out what we're going to do and record all that sort of stuff, we would then end up just kind of chatting, like, mates at the water cooler after that and then our conversations that you know every week our little calls would end up being less recording and more chatting and without even really meaning to or that just we just ended up as really good mates mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden out of nowhere he's just like one of my best mates on earth without like just because again i randomly said yes to a to a little game show thing that he wanted to run one time and then he happened to snag himself a job as a marketing director which he's excellent at you know obviously um, and, uh, now, yeah, I've stayed at his house and played this little kitten and, uh, we're working together on, yeah, all sorts of stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I was very, very lucky to, to, I'm very glad that I said yes to that, uh, to that game show. I'm very lucky that I decided not to bail on it because, uh, again, another, another change in my life that it definitely made it, uh, made it a lot better. Right. You never know what doors might be. I mean, first of all, you never know what doors might be open, but also mm. once you go in that door, you never know where it leads. But you have to go through that door. And I'm, say I'm, yes. And Dennis is a great guy. I know. I know Dennis as yeah. well. And it's just, well, it's well, really good that on. you. Uh... <laughs> let's not. Let's let's be like you know, right, right. Let's let's not let's not let's not. He's uh, a guy. Get too, get too carried away. I know. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. But just <laughs> I, I guess I guess to to transform this into actual advice, say yes. Say yes to things. You can always say yes now and no later if you're really really worried, right? Mm-hmm. Which you shouldn't do. You should just say yes. But just say yes to stuff. If it challenges you, if you're worried about it, the worst that can happen a lot of the time is you waste time, which, you know, you've got a fair bit of, or maybe a little bit of money. And that's what money is for, mm-hmm. is for, you know, taking risks like that, if you can afford to take it. Of course, not everyone's in a financial position where they can do that sort of stuff. But if you can, I encourage you to try saying yes to stuff. Uh, it's it's very powerful. For sure. Riley, switching gears a little bit, I know that you have been a school teacher for, or, I mean, you, you studied education, but... Mm-hmm. I also know that you have another thing or, and also a podcast that you're very passionate oh, yeah. about. So I would love for you to describe a little bit about your fascination with history, what sparked it. And now that I know that you, you know, you grew up reading things and, and, you know, mm. trying, trying to keep your eyes open, like how did you get into that and getting into that in a big way with the podcast and all of that stuff? So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to just basically do an enormous, big, long plug of my uh, my heart, my uh, history podcast, halfhousehistory.net. You can go there and listen to subscribe. Again, you don't have to listen. Just click on them. Let them play. You can mute them if you want. <laughs> just, just want the numbers. Just want the numbers. There, That's there you go. Just, just the SEO numbers. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so Half House History was the culmination of, I guess, a lot of 
real nonsense, like real just rubbish and, and enormous waste of my time there. So when I when I got into uh, when I finished high school, I got a, I got an offer to it for a, a law course, um, which I didn't take. I didn't want to go to law school for a couple of reasons. The main one being I didn't want to be a lawyer, um, and Instead, I accepted a position uh, doing an arts degree. So liberal arts, I think it's called in the States. Um, so doing – initially, it was actually psychology. I was going to do psychology. And I turned up to some of the lectures, and I realized, wow, I have absolutely no idea what any of this is about. It's all about potassium ions and action potentials and all this chemistry and biology and science stuff that I'm really interested in but just way too dumb to understand. Um, so I very quickly pivoted before the first semester, I actually changed my major to double major between history and politics. At this stage, I was very interested in politics, very politically active. I was very, in, I loved arguing. I loved debating. I loved, you know, having discussions and, and, and challenging, you know, political view, whatever else like that. Um, and history I just picked up because I enjoy it. I've always liked book stories. I've always enjoyed, you know, uh, tales of, I guess high fantasy as well as stuff like you know medieval and 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 the age the age of sail and all that sort of stuff, and so history was more of an interest and less of a sort of career path. I just thought it'd be interesting to do to do a bit of that. And then by the time I finished my degree, it was almost the exact opposite. I was so done, so disillusioned with politics, and I still am. I just can't stand political discourse, political discussions. I don't like arguing with people. I've got broadly correct left-leaning opinions and if someone challenges me i'm just not going to waste my time debating with them because i know that they're wrong and you know you can't come to me with attempting to defend so much of what is happening in the political sphere at this stage especially in this country with what's going on with brexit and all the all the all the horrific nonsense you see coming from the far right and, and even the, the the near right as well around the world it's just it's just the worst it's the pits and i'm not going to have anything to do with it i mean this is about as political as i get mm -hmm. But history, all of a sudden, just took off. And I'm going to these lectures and having a great time. And the other thing, it's so easy. Oh, my goodness. You can write anything in a history essay. As long <laughs> as you broadly adhere to the truth of dates and facts and, and names and figures, oh, they don't care at all. Uh -huh. So I'm paraphrasing Wikipedia articles in my, uh, in my essays and having a great time. It's like a life hack that you've discovered, right? Absolutely. And then I then I graduate, and the job offers just, of course, did not stop because now I had a history degree. I searched solidly for six months for any job I could find. This is when I picked up work as a, as a, as a trivia host, right? Mm -hmm. Looking for anything in the history industry as an archivist or a librarian or just anything, and there was nothing. There were no jobs in history. So I said, I'll bugger that. I'll do music. Instead, did the sound production. Obviously, that fell off, so I started doing education as well. History was always a, a, a huge passion of mine. One of the reasons I moved to, to Berlin, actually in Berlin I had three jobs. I was working as a primary school teacher. I was doing the GP commentary. And I was also working as a tour guide. I used to take people around showing them where, you know, for example, Adolf Hitler died. Oh, or, interesting. Uh, yeah, showing them all these all these incredible – because Berlin, as I say, it's, it is a crux. It is a crossing point of 20th, uh, 20th century. It is the most important city in 20th century history. And being able to take people through – where the Berlin Wall fell and where the Reichstag was burnt to the ground and where, you know, King Frederick the, the Great had his, uh, had his palace just outside the city, that sort of stuff. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Anyway, at the end of one of the tours, one of the tour guide, one of the tour managers, uh, so I was, I was taking like a, a tour group around, a group, a Kentucky tour. I don't know if you know. It does, it's not important. One of the guys who was on the tour with me was like, you're really good at this. I was like, thank you very much. You should do a podcast. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, just pick some of the stuff that you're talking about in these things and just record it. And I was like, mm, all right, that actually kind of sounds like fun. Again, all I want in life is an audience, so this might get me one. Mm -hmm. So I started recording it, and um, 
uh, it was really rewarding, I found. It was actually something that I did just for me. And I put them up and, you know, not many, very many people listen to them to begin with, but then more and more people do now. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a I've not a huge podcast, but I've got a, a sizable little little audience there that I'm very, very, very fond of indeed. But it, it just keeps my eye in and it makes me feel like, the, you know, three years or three and a half years that I wasted at university getting a history degree weren't completely wasted. Um, but more than anything else, just it's just interesting to keep my eye in academically and 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 continue to read and stay engaged in, uh, you know, different, different pieces and parts of history and just, yeah, learn a lot and if you like my commentary, you'll probably like Half-Assed History. It's very nonsense-heavy, um, but you will, you'll learn learn a thing or two. I definitely learn a thing or two when I'm reading about it and 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 and, and uh, you know writing the writing the scripts for the episode. So I do I do advise you go and listen to it again, even if to just to just uh, get my numbers up. Please, 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 please. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's definitely a passion project, and it's something that I learned that if you want something to succeed, and this sounds I'm, I I know how you're going to feel listening to this. If, if you're attempting to create content, you've got to make stuff that you like. You've got to make stuff that you love. You've got to start make. You've got to make content that you yourself would want to consume. And my history podcast is exactly that. I, I love making it. I love, you know, having people listen to it. Whatever else. But you you're never going to succeed as a content creator if you if you're only making stuff for the sake of it. You've got to make stuff that you believe in and that that even if zero people ever come across, it is still fulfilling for you to make. Absolutely. It, it scratches your own itch, essentially. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Like, it stimulates your own love of history. And I guess it's um, may, maybe the way I look at it from how you described it is like, it's almost like a forcing function for you to be still involved in that. Yeah, in that exactly. Field, you know, and at the same yes, time, yes. it has the side benefit of having listeners. Yeah, sure. And, and as I say, if you're going to make something like this, a passion project, you've got to make it for you and you've got to be content. You've got to be, if you put something out there and no one ever, ever sees it, right? As mm -hmm. if you feel satisfied with it, that is the best way to succeed because either you win either way, either you make it for yourself and you love it and that's enough, or it blows up and it's the next big thing and everyone loves it and either way you win. So don't ever force yourself through stuff that again, makes you miserable, makes you unhappy, is is too much, too much work or, or too hard to, you know, isn't giving you any kind of rewards. I think there's a good parallel for Half Hour's History and Arena Boys mm. and tying that to limited resources because I understand from talking to Marshall that the reason why he did it in the first place was because he was just talking about limited with his friend and mm. he just wanted to capture that because at some point they realized that this discussion is so potentially valuable for other people that I might as well just do it. And, you know, it wasn't like a calculated thing. Like I'm going to become no. this empire, which they are now, or you know, with him and Luis, and and you know, being one of the best podcasts out there for magic. But mm -hmm. it's it's just like it started from a passion, and that's kind of how he was able to do it every week. And that's the other thing is the consistency is, of that show is just unbelievable. Yeah. Like yes. yeah. I, there's there's just so so much to learn from that, and I'm definitely seeing a parallel between. LR and what you do with your stuff because it, it fundamentally comes from some a place where you know you want to do it you want to hang out with your friends or you want to mm -hmm. talk about history yeah it's it's got to be close to effortless I mean half ass history sometimes is a little bit more full ass than I'd like it to be especially <laughs> when I'm you know struggling through because it's it's got to be true it's sure be yeah true. I mean it, it's a you lot know? of work to prepare I, I can definitely yep. tell um, but uh, at the end of the day if you feel satisfied if it scratches that itch and again if it's if it's making you do something worthy with your time. I would advise that as long as you, again, are satisfied, if no one ever sees it, you should make the content that makes you happy. 
So having said that, are there things about this podcast that you feel like you still have not explored or you like to get better oh, yeah. or do differently? Ah, man. See, I'm in two minds. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm at the level now where I could start getting sponsorship and I don't really want to, to be honest, but oh, then like, really? I'm just leaving money. I'm just leaving money on the table and yeah. I don't know. I don't really want to talk about blue apron and the mattresses <laughs> and the glasses and all the rest of that stuff. But at the end of the day, like, again, I'm leaving money on the table. So what right. do I do? Like, do I pick up sponsors? Do I, do I go after that or I don't know. I haven't made up my mind. I, I think you should of... do it, man. I, I know you're not asking for my advice, but just, one of the one of the reasons why I got this podcast to be picked up by CFB is because, first mm. of all, I love CFB and I love what they mm. stand for. But secondly, because I feel like it's sort of a weird paradox. Like you know, you start off creating content thinking like if only one person listens to it, it's great. But then, mm. at least for me, you get kind of greedy and you're just like, well, I did all this work already. Why not get yeah. it out to more people? And, oh, I wouldn't mind. You know, I wouldn't mind like it's it being. If I could get a, a Channel Fireball sponsorship for half this, that'd be great. <laughs> like if I got it syndicated there, no. But it's more about just like polluting the message or, or mm-hmm. you know, forcing people to have to skip through boring ads or whatever. I mean, then I thought you know maybe I could make ads interesting. Maybe I could make them funny or whatever else yeah. like that. But I don't know, man. It's a it's a it's a problem for another day. I think at this stage, I'm happy to. I'm I'm actually starting merch. This is this is my big project at the moment. I'm I'm in the process of ordering a bunch of t-shirts and magnets and all sorts of other stuff like that to to send out to people and. Uh, yeah, right on. Yeah. And and that's that's sort of what I'm going through with the podcast at the moment. But advertisement long term, I don't know. I think I'd have to talk to my listeners and see if it's something they're going to be happy with as well. Because um, I don't know. I don't really want to. I think I, your listeners I, will I mean, love you no matter what you do because the content is still going to be true. And uh, you know, I, I'm just saying. I'm not saying you know do anything that I that James says. But if the ads can somehow be a good vehicle for you to reach more listeners or allow you to support the show better. Mm. You know, it, it, it's worth considering, right? I'm sure. Well, you've I'm gonna, it, I mean, so. I, I said to you before, I take advice that's given to me very seriously. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll file that one away, and I'll, uh, I don't know. At the end of the day, it'll just come to a point where like the money is going to win out, and I'll get, you know, well, <laughs> yeah, touch wood. Hopefully, I'll, it'll get to a point where it's just way too much money for me to leave on the table, and you know, the tens of thousands of blue apron dollars I just can't ignore anymore. <laughs> I, I'm really so blue apron has just come I feel to the like top. You gotta, you, now, I feel I like you I'm have to get a blue apron sponsorship now. No, I hope, I hope because blue apron is they, listening. I think they sponsor Mabimbam, I think, or someone just they're just like the or was it my dad wrote a porno. Whatever it was. It's a podcast that I've listened to that they sponsored like excessively. So uh-huh. they're just the podcast sponsor that come to my head. I'm not in like I'm sure there are I'm sure red apron is just as good as blue apron <laughs> and, you know. Anyway. <laughs> there you go. I do want to ask you though, can you think of any different, uh, any similarities maybe between doing history podcast versus magic content? Like, I mean, you're, it's different audiences, but are there things that may be generically applied, even though it's it's not magic related for you? I think the the scope with history is just enormously broad. Uh, with magic, if you're commentating on a game, there's only so far you can stray away from what's happening in front of you, which is difficult. Um, you know, it gives you a bit more of a scope to put put more of yourself into the content when you when you've got a broader scope there like that. Like I can share little anecdotes or I can talk about things that you know I'm reminded of when I'm talking about history. Whereas with magic, especially if you're commentating a game, you've got to stick with the game, the pace of the game. Although I don't do that a lot, which is oops. Um, and then you know when it comes to written stuff like articles for CFB, or whatever else like that, you know again you've got to you've got to have a clear focus, you've got to have a contention, you've got to have it structured in a way where you're you're, you're imparting information in a digestible format. And I guess there are similarities there because at the end of the day, with the history podcast, it's it's about telling a story. Um, and so there's definitely lessons that I've learned 
from both sides that have sort of informed the other in terms of broadcasting a message or telling a story or getting across information in a way that people are going to uh, remember it or it's going to go in on some level that that means something to them. So there's definitely similarities, but you know I wouldn't say that the two are hugely closely linked and definitely both of them can obviously exist without the other. So yeah. Got it. Okay, so Riley, I'm going to do a couple of rapid fire questions that may not be totally related to each other, but I just feel like I I needed to ask you. Are you okay with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. hit me. Let's go. All right. So what are your professional goals in the next three years, three to five years? Man, I got no idea. I got no idea, man. I like Other than be happy and say yes to stuff, I guess. I mean, professional goals. I mean, I... I like where I am now. Um, I'd like to continue, I guess, in the vein that I'm now picking up maybe a bit more of an audience, maybe bro- you know expanding my broadcasting when it comes to magic. There's a lot of third party tournaments coming in. You know, I did a little bit with a bit of work with Red Bull and the stuff that they did over the summer no, here. With, you know, with Raf, right? I think with Raf, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there have been other tournaments here and there that I've been involved with. Or there's some coming up that I'm going to be involved with, and that you know, that's very exciting. That's very good. Um, CFB are wonderful to work for. They they really treat me so well, and I'm really lucky to be in the position. Like I, I, I was on Limited Resource a couple of months ago, and Marshall introduced me as Channel Fireballs Riley Knight, and that was incredible. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that I am on the the CFB squad, like I'm one of the people that that is associated with that brand, is just just something. I'm ki- like I'm, I'm pinching myself to that's the case and hopefully you know i can expand more of my presence with them and more of the stuff that i do with them as well because they're fantastic to work with and work work for um three to five years is is a tricky number because i i'll just sort of take it take it as it comes see where it goes but i I can tell you what i'm going to be doing in 20 years and that is teaching that is that is teaching i i one day i will go back to the classroom because i miss it desperately i love the job that i have now but i miss teaching so so much working with children is is such a passion of mine it's something that makes me so effortlessly happy and fulfilled um and i've tried to balance doing both and it is not sustainable and i had i had to make the very difficult decision to to put teaching on hold but the reason i did that james is that i know that i'll always be able to go back to it once i close the door on magic content creation magic commentary i know it'll be very hard to come back to it once i've sort of moved away but teaching will always be there. And so in 20 years' time, I, I, te- I will be teaching in an Australian school somewhere up in Queensland, up where it's nice and warm, and I'll be teaching little kids how to add and divide and uh, you know, and write and spell and all the rest of it, so, telling stories and singing songs and, and reading books. And I, I can't wait. It's it's something that I'm really looking forward to. You know, I'll, when I'm a bit older, in my 40s, my 50s, I know I'm going to be back in the classroom. And, uh, you know, having having that in my back pocket, having that down the road is something that gives me a lot of, uh, a lot of peace and it allows me to live the life that I have now to the fullest, I think, because I know that at the end of the day, I'll be able to, it's not, it doesn't feel like a safety net, but I know that the, the very worst thing that can happen to me, even, you know, if, 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 I don't know, magic stop, if they stop printing magic cards tomorrow, which is never going to happen. But if that, if, if, if the ass just fell out of magic and all of a sudden I don't have a job with CFB or, or, or wizards or anything, I'll just get back to teaching. And that's, that's a marvelous thing to have. What would you tell the younger Riley Knight if, you could go back in time five years. What would you tell the the younger, five years younger, Riley? So exactly five years. I'm 25, so I've just moved to Berlin. Um, to just chill out a little bit. Um, he was very worried at this stage about his teaching career. He was It was the first time he'd had a full-time job, and it was very full-on, and there was a lot of stuff he didn't know. He's kind of chucked in the deep end. So I'd go back and just say, mate, listen, it's fine. No one really cares. You're doing, a, you're doing an okay job, so don't worry. Um what else? 
What else does he need to know? He needs to know, he needs just to, to know to just relax a little bit and that it's not, things aren't a race. You know, you can, you can achieve success in a, in a time frame that suits you and not, not that one that looks good to other people. And I guess, I guess to, I don't know, I, I don't think, I don't think I'd want to tell him too much about what's coming in the future because, you know, exploring all of that and, t- and, and making his own way, I think was, you know, is, is part of the, the magic. I would tell him to go, actually, one thing I'd say to him is don't muck around going all these other, uh, go to Bavaria, go to Bavaria, start hiking in Bavaria. I discovered <laughs> I liked, I loved hiking at a very, uh, at a very advanced age. Like I was, I, I, I was like 27 before I realized I liked actually. Uh, so you never wanted hiking, to do that when you were in Australia or elsewhere. No, that's the thing, man. So what happened was, I'll tell this story very quickly. I know, I know this has gone on forever. I was playing Civ, and there's this thing in Civ where people take their laptops, civilization, they'll take laptops to world wonders that they'll build on their laptop and then take a picture of themselves in front of the world wonder that they've built, right? Uh-huh. And someone did this for Castle Neuschwanstein, which is in Bavaria. And so I thought, oh, I'll go and visit that. But you have to climb up a big mountain to get there. And I did that, and I was like, I love this. I was panting and sweating and having a terrible time. Thinking, but then there's part of me that's just, mm, mm, love it. Oh, feeling all like fit and rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. And so every year from then, twice a year, every year, I go to Bavaria, I go to Garmisch-Partenkirchen, I go to Füssen, I go to Berchtesgaden, all these places down in the, uh, in the, in the Bavarian Alps, and I just climb up mountains and, and sweat like a pig, and I love it. So I think I go back five years, I'd say two things, my dude, two things, 25-year-old Riley. Chill out. You're doing fine. It's going to be all right. So just, just, just relax and don't stress so much because worrying means you suffer twice. And the second thing is get in a train, go to Bavaria, climb mountains because you love it. So next question what would you tell the future Riley Knight five years into the future, I guess 35-year-old Riley Knight, so that he would not forget something that you feel is very important to you right now? I'm a, I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to forget how much joy teaching gave me. I've already noticed in the two years that I've been away from the industry that I miss it less than I used to. Um, it was really a really, really tough decision to move away from teaching. And... I worry that I'll never go back. I really do. I, it, it means that much to me and it makes me that happy that I think it's very unlikely. But I just, if I could go for, if I could go and have a chat with 35 year old, I just say, mate, you just, just how are you with teaching? Like, are you, do you remember how much joy it gives you to work with kids? Do you remember how satisfied and how much, how you went home every day knowing that just by putting a smile on the, on the face of a couple of eight-year-olds, you've made the world a better place. Even if it's just a very small, by a very small margin, you've done, you've done something to improve the overall stock of human happiness, which is, I think, all anyone can ever hope to do. And I think just checking in with him and saying, like, just, just don't forget, like, make sure that you remember that that is something that's really important to you, something that makes you really happy. And, and just remembering how to be a kid because that's, that's one thing that a lot of my friends say about me is that just, I just, I'm just a kid, like I'm just a big grown-up kid and I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that a lot, of, a lot of my strength, I wasn't a very good teacher. I wasn't very good at actual literal teaching, but bloody hell, we had a, just, a, just the, the most amazingly wonderful time in my classrooms. We had such an incredible culture of, of positivity and love and and one of the reasons for that is I remembered, I still remember what it's like to be a kid. I remember what is important and what is not important to a kid. I remember how, how, how awful it is when your relatives give you clothes for Christmas. What a waste. Give me toys. Don't give me clothes. Clothes are boring. <laughs> give me fun stuff. Yeah. Exactly. I remember how important it is that, you know, that, that you have, that, that kids feel 
listened to, that they have some sense of agency, that that when they come in and talk to you about something, that they feel like what they're saying is important to you and that they're not being treated like a stupid kid who doesn't. You should never, ever, ever tell a child, oh, you'll understand when you're old. Oh, you're too young. You should never tell a child that. What a disrespectful thing to say to a human. What a disrespectful thing to say to someone who, by through no fault of their own, doesn't have a, a grasp of the situation to understand something that's beyond them. No. You, you be honest with them. You explain to them. It, you explain something to them in terms. I've explained Einstein's theory of general relativity to eight-year-olds on a level that they can understand. Not very well, I, would, I, will, I will add, but something that at least that they can, and, and can understand a frame of reference. And sure, there are things that kids don't need to know about. Violence, murder, all sorts of other stuff that's just way beyond them. Mm-hmm. But you explain to them why you don't just dismiss it and say you'll understand when you're older oh you're too young you say this is the sort of thing that adults have to worry about this is the sort of thing that children have to be given the opportunity not to have to be concerned about because you have your life to live as an eight-year-old because you have other things to explore discover and, and, and enjoy before these grim realities of the world and i don't know maybe i'm way off base with this but i treated the kids in my classroom, like like my friends, and there is so much pedagogy, there is so much education, educational you know science out there that says not to do this, but it led to some of the happiest years and the happiest experiences of my life working with these kids, and I'd ne- I'd never walk that back. So if I could talk to thirty five year old Riley, I would say, mate, just just make sure you keep your own with teaching, and make sure you remember that in you know ten fifteen years from now, hopefully you'll be back in the classroom at some stage. That's great. I mean, at the very least, you can listen back to this and just, you know, every year <laughs> yeah. for the next five years, you're all set. I appreciate set. that. Yeah. If you, just, if you just send me a message in five years and I'll have to listen to this. So, hello, 35-year-old Riley. I hope that your hair hasn't completely fallen out and I hope that you remember <laughs> that, you know, it, the, the joy of still listening to your inner child. Right. No, that's very important because I can remember some good teachers that I've had and they mm. definitely had a lifetime impact on me and it's just... Mm. The, the impact just cascades. It's, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like exponential because you can yes. just reach out and... Do you want to know a secret about those teachers as well, right? Those teachers that, that you remember, they had teachers in their life that they remembered and they copied them. Because all of the teachers who will go up and as you know grow up as adults and remember that Riley that they had teaching them in grade three in Berlin you know, in 2015, they were just getting secondhand Rodney that taught me when I was eight years old in, you know, 1997 in, in Melbourne and Rodney was getting secondhand whoever taught him. So you're right. It's exponential. It's something that cascades. It gets passed down from teacher to teacher. So I don't know. And, and the other thing I'll say to people listening to this podcast, if there's a teacher who has, who is still on your heart, still on your mind today, and you can just email them or get in touch, just do it because it would mean the world to them. If you're, you know, 20, 30 years old, whatever else, and you just send them an email saying, Hey, I was just thinking about you and you know, the impact you had on me and just thanks very much or I just remember this lesson or this this message or this story or whatever and it's still with me. Like that that is that is gonna make their, that's not even gonna make their day, that's gonna make their they're gonna make their year telling them that. So right. yeah. Excellent. So Riley, I love talking to you. It was a really great time. We went into a couple of directions that I did not anticipate. Yeah, but I didn't expect that. It ended, <laughs> no, it ended up being much better than I expected. So oh, um, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Oh, mate, thank you so much for that. I, I got the sense that because when I when I said to you like, oh, you know, I'd love to be on the podcast, and you were like, I, I got the sense that you felt like I was doing you a favor 
mate, you are absolutely the one doing me a favor here. This is an, this is an honor to be on Humans and Magic. Like, this is an absolute privilege to be able to sit here and talk nonsense with you. For you know, I, I thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness. No, the pleasure is all mine because this show doesn't is a little bit unique in that it does not exist if I'm the only one talking. So mm. <laughs> I'm really glad that you took the time to to share with us. You know, some of the um, the things that you went through, and I think it's very it's very inspiring for. Yeah, I'll just say it's very inspiring. Absolutely. Too. Can I say one more thing before before we close it out? Absolutely. I'm a real human. And even today with this incredible life that maybe it looks like a bit on paper, I still have days that are just awful. Still have days where I'm cross, frustrated, upset, miserable, unhappy. Still have days that are fantastic where I get to have that nice lunch with my mates. And from the inside looking out, it's always so much easier to compare the worst parts of your life with the best parts of other people's. And so I think just one thing I want to, I want to leave people with here is don't compare your reality with someone else's highlight reel. When you see someone kicking goals with both feet on Facebook or, you know, going on trips around the world or doing whatever, whatever else it is. And you look at your life, oh, geez, my life's miserable compared to it. No, it's not because everyone at the end of the day, everyone has a shared experience of, of, of the, the full range of, of human emotions. Well, most people do at least. And so it comes back to what I was saying about giving yourself permission to, to, to be happy. At the end of the day, you have total control over the direction in which your life takes. So don't hold yourself hostage to misery, especially by comparing yourself to the people you consider to be above you, because they're not. Everyone at the end of the day is just a human. And everyone at the end of the day has, again, that full range of experience. So give yourself permission to be happy and look after yourself. And I don't really have a huge, big, Closing off, signing off. No, I didn't expect this to get so philosophical, but just be happy because you deserve it. All right? That's it. I'm done. <laughs> Wonderful words to, to live by. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I need to, I'd probably need to refine them a little bit before I write, you know, the, the, the writing art philosophical guide to happiness, but we'll see. Well, I'll work on it. No, no, I think you're ready. I think, I think this is going to be your next Channel Fireball article, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Look, look forward to that. Yeah, excellent. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care and, and be well. Thank you. Absolutely. You too. Listen to Half House History or don't just listen. Just open it because it looks good for the numbers. <laughs> Halfhousehistory.net. Get across it. <laughs> no, you should actually listen to it. It's actually a good show. <laughs>